live stream. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy. Oh, thank you. I think I'm gonna just in advance share my screen, and that will wait. But at least I know. Then we know it works, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> Father Chris, when does your semester end? The second Never. week of December. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the second week of December, I'm not sure what the exact Monday is. I think it's the 14th, maybe? Or yes, the 14th. It's the 14th, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, so that'll be the final exam that day. So the last class will be the 7th, then they have their exam. And even though the exam actually is going to be take home. So I'm going to have them required to have the exam back to me by the 14th. Uh, no class that night. That would be the exam usually. So that'll be kind of wrapping things up. Is this considered one of your bigger classes? Could well, we had two so far. I had seven guys last year, um, but they were all New York guys. We had no Bridgeport guys last year in class. This is kind of a new new thing this year. But twenty is a definitely um, a good a good sized number. I'm not sure what the years after this one will be, but uh, twenty is a good size for sure. I thought she was implying that we were fat. <laughs> no be issue implying that. There's <laughs> always one doctor, you know. <laughs> Speaking for myself, I gained six pounds. In quarantine during this COVID period or just uh, recently? Since last class, Peter? <laughs> I'm pretty close. Really? Wow. You said, you know, feed a coast, starve a fever. I got a cold. I got to eat. Those are the rules, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to save the economy, goddammit. I hear you, man. I hear you. Oh, boy. Well, Father Chris, thank you for giving me two and a half days of the classes. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> no problem, sure. We had uh, Ed Beckman last week give a really beautiful class on end-of-life issues and some of those challenges that are facing us today. So we're kind of transitioning into the medical ethics part of the semester now. And you know, part of tonight's presentation is some of the technology that's available uh, in, in charting and so it, it works dovetails perfectly well with 
where this semester currently is. Yeah, yeah, good, good, good. Housekeeping notes before we start class tonight, fellas. I graded almost almost all your papers. A couple of them are still um, being worked on, but I tried to return to you guys uh, comments that would be helpful as you develop it. And again, you know, the biggest part of the assignment was a matter of just giving you a sense of what's involved in writing a homily like that. Uh, what are the important points? What I kind of focus on. So I hope that it was um, not torturous. I hope that it was kind of enjoyable or interesting as you kind of worked on it um, get a sense of some of the things that are so critical to be included in a wedding homily or if you're giving a pre-canic class or a presentation in the parish uh, the real important points for us to focus on when we are um, talking about marriage and, and the power of beauty of the sacrament that we're not leaving anything out but we're emphasizing all the important points so Hopefully the grading and the kind of comments gave you a sense of that. All right, so we will begin with a prayer, and then Dr. Wither, it's all yours. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Seat of wisdom. Pray for The wither is all yours. Okay. Well, thank you. And it's good to be back here with you guys again. I, I am appreciative of this time. It's always good to uh, get get this information out there um, to you guys as you're out working with uh, uh, couples in the parish. But uh, one thing I wanted to do, just a little bit by way of review, but Again, I, I wanted to keep this title slide up, and if I could just uh, emphasize maybe one more time, um, and just let me just ask you, you can see my mouse pointer moving, correct? Okay, good. Um, you know, the traditional term of NFP, it, it rolls off your tongue a little easier than natural family planning, and it also rolls off of your tongue a little easier than FABMs or fertility awareness-based methods. But if you can almost, um, um, kind of program yourselves to use the term even just fertility awareness a little bit more it's I think it will speak a little bit more to the young couples and you know NFP kind of has the, um, uh, the, the connotation of what am I doing so that I can have sex and not get pregnant what the fertility awareness uh, kind of has uh, more implicit to it is you know the, the term awareness is um, kind of knowledge based. So I'm teaching people about their fertility. Now we're talking tonight pretty much just about women, and I'll, I'll mention that a little bit, but 
it, it just connotes a little bit more um, proactive and uh, knowledge based. So, and I think that's a little bit more attractive to the young couples who we're talking to, but it's also a little bit more correct and, and uh, broad spectrum. So just uh, by way of review on that. And then the uh, second thing, uh, just to review, we finished with this slide last um, at our last session and tonight we're going to be getting a little bit more into uh, the, the nitty gritty. So we had started with a little bit of the theological and then the historical. And then we started getting into this with what's actually happening with fertility awareness. So we're going to drill down a little bit more into one of these. We're going to drill down a little bit more into FEM, which is one of the um, more modern um, it's not a, a natural family planning method itself. It's a different way of uh, teaching it. And then we're going to get into the pastoral issues to wrap up the night. But this is such a good chart. Um, I want to just review it again. I'm going to, we're going to jump down into the, um, uh, the website, if I can actually move my little uh, bar here. And just I want to show you one more thing, because these links are all, I put them in here so that you can easily refer back to them or just give them to somebody. But again, the different methods that we're going to talk about of fertility awareness use different signs, or another word for signs is biomarkers or life markers. And they're external um, signs and symptoms that a woman or a couple would, would either observe or sense on a daily basis. And um, the the three main ones, I guess, is the cervical fluid or the cervical mucus um, methods, which the main ones that we um, really work with or promote primarily is the Creighton method. Uh, Billings is a little simpler and it's okay. The reason that we would normally do Creighton a little bit more is if a woman or couple are having uh, gynecological or menstrual issues, including infertility, and there needs to be uh, a physician involved, Creighton has doctors at the Gianna Center that can be easily referred to. So that's one of the reasons we choose that. Uh, this two-day method is a very simplistic one, uh, but it doesn't track your fertility days. If you look at this, the asterisks by some of these are because they had their uh, scientific evidence and their evidence base. But some of the newer ones, like FEM and uh, uh, you know, this Justice, and especially even like taking charge of your fertility, they don't have it because their thought is, is and especially in the Catholic Church, you know, we've got to watch our funding. Uh, why invest in science that's already been proven when we can invest our monies in, in science going forward? So it's a little bit of a misnomer on here, but that's what that means. So our cervical fluid methods um, are some that we'll be looking at. Symptothermal, again, the thermal says uh, it has to do with a woman taking her temperature on a daily basis, but there's other symptoms that she watches, and they are the fluid, which is cervical fluid, plus temperature, and it says plus or minus calendar, and it's also plus or minus another uh, indicator. Now, this is kind of a cross-check because uh, the woman or the couple uh, is looking at two things for certainty's sake. Okay, so that's why some couples will want that. It's a little bit older, and the size of this uh, circle and the division really has to do with how big was the group when um, FAX actually put this together and they did their surveys. So that's, that's the division there. 
Uh, there is a calendar method down here that we really don't use, but it's kind of neat. It's called standard days or cycle beads. There are beads that looks like almost like a rosary, uh, and they're simple. Um, but again, it's if, if you really want to be certain that you're you know not going to get pregnant, and um, you want as you know as few days as possible not to have to abstain. You don't worry about those, and that could be an okay method. I wasn't sure if I heard somebody. Everybody okay? okay. Um, and then the symptohormonal method is again we're looking at um, what are the hormones that a woman has fluctuating in her daily cycle that are detected in urine. So they're the urinary metabolites, and you'll we'll look take a look at that. But just like when you take a pregnancy uh, test, you know you have your uh, you know uh, urine sticks that you either you know you usually just dip in a urine stream. We're going to see with these two methods, you can use urine strips or sticks that either you know they, they themselves have the reading, or you put them into um, a monitor, which are all home based, and it gives you certainty. It's more objective. That says ah. I know, just like when you when a woman takes a pregnancy test, you know she thinks she might be pregnant, but the, she goes and gets the pregnancy test just to be sure. So uh, that's why we're going to take a look at them also. But these, the cervical mucus, the symptothermal, and the symptohormonal, they all have the cervical fluid as a basis, and we're going to look at the importance of that. That's kind of the main and the best indicator but it's subjective because you have to kind of make some decisions as to you know, what the quantity and quality of that is. Um, and then of course, when you are uh, postpartum and possibly breastfeeding, you don't have a menstrual cycle at that point. So you have to have some other way of um, understanding whether you're fertile or not. So we're gonna take a look at that, but these different signs, um, are called biomarkers, and we're going to look at what's underlying them. So we're going to just take a look now at one of those methods that we think is, uh, we, we promoted a lot, it's relatively new, it's called FEM, which stands for Fertility Education Medical Management. Now it was, uh, the company itself FEM was founded by a woman by the name of Anna Halpin. She did a presentation at our 50th anniversary conference with Lani Vitae. And Anna, she lives and works here in New York. Uh, she's the founder of the World Youth Alliance, which is affectionately known as WIA. Um, she's the CEO of the FEM Foundation, which is the sister project of the World Youth Alliance. And she founded this organization a little more than 20 years ago as a way to stand up for women's uh, for stand up for the human dignity and advocate for pro life and pro family policy at the United Nations. But it is also an outgrowth of, of her work that she works with women to develop ways that they have um, uh, their health and their fertility is taken care of. Anna is a, um, and actually a, a homeschooled Catholic who. Um, realized with some of the traditional methods of natural family planning, we weren't getting the young people because we weren't advancing. So when Anna created this, uh, the 
FEM organization and World Youth Alliance, she knew she needed to reach out to the secular world, to the young adults. So she did that. She developed an app that goes right along with this. And there was some resistance. Um, both FEM and FACTS that we looked at are actually secular organizations, but they're made up of a lot of Catholic people. Um, there's a few FEM, FACTS, and Natural Woman, I'm going to show you where they're all run by strong Catholic leaders, but they don't want to um, explicitly say they're Catholic and, and leave out other people. So we've seen really good um, work with FEM. I'm going to jump to their website, which this is what the cover of their website is, what FEM does. Um, they call themselves a comprehensive women's health program so that women could learn about their bodies, even if they're teenagers, you know, who have just entered puberty, if they're single women, if they're married, if they're at the time of menopause. Um, women can track their health, manage their fertility, which would be the natural family planning piece. And then also they have strong medical protocols so you can find doctors and now they have telemedicine. So. Um, we, we promote this one uh, pretty readily because of their connection with the young people. I'm going to jump real quickly into their website. Um, did it come up? Okay, so the only thing I'm going to show you here, you know, you see that that is the website. Uh, but what I want to do, I mean, you can see a lot of these are very, I don't want to say woman-centric, but the colors, the design are much more feminine. Um, we, we focus a little bit more on the women because in general, a healthy woman is only fertile, you know, six to nine days of the month where the man, a healthy man is always fertile. So we have to be more careful with the, with the, the woman's health. But as we talk about women, uh, natural family planning or fertility awareness and focusing not just on that piece but women's health overall and honing into reproductive health we also do realize that there are issues with men's fertility and just as with women it's i think one out of six or eight women now are infertile uh the number of infertile men is also growing so at the same time that all of this research and development is going on with women's health there is a corresponding uh, movement with men to realize a lot of times it isn't the woman who's infertile, it is the man and his semen quality and count and so on, sperm quality and count. Um, the only thing I'm going to show you here, and the reason I show you is to give you every tip I could give you that if you need to help a young woman or uh, a teenage girl, with no cost, there are things you can do without you needing to be an expert because as middle-aged men, you know, it's going to be, it's probably, uh, you're not going to be able to give as much detail to a woman or a young woman uh, than to point her in one place. Here we can have where you can take a class, and I'm just going to show you if I scroll, um, you know, there's a, you know, uh, you know there, there's a FEM1 session, a FEM2, a FEM3, but also what's nice about this is there's a free of charge FEM intro. And one of the ways that we help young couples um, at least take a look at this is tell them, look, I think this is a 30 minute intro and it's just a very brief explanation of what this is to say, what do you think? You know, do you wanna take the full class? And for to have an NFP full class, it would be, for example, in FEM, 
FEM 1, 2, and 3, typically spaced a month apart because what you're looking at is um, to really work, uh, the woman would need to chart her cycles for at least uh, one whole cycle between the next class. So those are just a couple of things, uh, you know, as, as much as I can give you, I am. Now, this other chart uh, we'll take a look at, but recognizing ovulation and the fertile window. And by the way, the reason I have some of these up and the next few slides are from Anna herself. And she actually did um, a presentation, I think two years ago at the seminary. And we started doing some at, at a couple of the parishes. Um, and I have permission to use some of her slides. So that's what I did. But something that you hopefully you get out of tonight is um, how important ovulation is and the fertile window. But you know, when you think of a woman's cycle, you would probably think kind of the most important aspect of it are those days when um, she is bleeding and she has her uh, menses. But that's the only the most visible, the most important part of a woman's cycle, if she's an ovulating, is ovulation. And I hope by the end of this, you'll understand it. And a key is, this is what the, the hormonal birth control suppresses. And they found that if I suppress it, you know, no baby. But what they didn't realize is by suppressing ovulation, you're suppressing the health of a woman or you're denigrating the health of a woman because ovulation is a sign of health. So um, this, this chart here that you're seeing, um, you, you know, here's what it might look like on a mobile app. Here's what it might look like when a woman charts maybe on paper, but in, in any case, what fertility awareness and, and NFP emphasize or require is that daily a woman or a woman and her husband um, chart, whether it's digitally or on paper, those biomarkers or signs in her body. Um, that, that is a part that, you know, it's, it's a new habit that might uh, have some pushback from women which is why having apps makes it just a little bit easier uh, because we're all using apps right now anyway. So I'm gonna go a little bit more. I don't wanna talk about um, this right now other than you can probably presume that these red marks are the days that the woman is bleeding. And then there's some gray areas which are times when she's not fertile. Um, and then there is these blue times where she's fertile. So you kind of get a sense of what's happening there. So what, what um, the reason that a woman needs to chart daily is because daily those signs or, or biomarkers are changing. And the underlying reason that those signs or symptoms are changing has to do with the hormones. And there are four hormones that are really the main ones in the reproductive system. Um, you can look at them here. Two of them come from the brain, which are uh, something called LH and FSH. And then, of course, the ones that we're all more familiar with, which is estrogen and progesterone. And, of course, testosterone, but not in, we're not going to worry about that with a woman. So for a, uh, in a woman, FSH is something called follicle-stimulating hormone. Now, we know that and what we've learned is in order for a baby to be conceived, you need the egg from a woman and the sperm from a man. However, 
that's that's been a little modified, but you know you don't really see it anywhere. It's really the egg from the woman, the sperm from the man, and cervical fluid, that same cervical mucus, because if that's not present, the sperm will die. Uh, the, the woman will not be able to uh, she won't be able to nourish that sperm and move it along so that it can meet the egg. And that was a key thing. That's why um, uh, we're going to look at uh, the cervical fluid aspect of a woman's cycle. But follicle stimulating hormone is every egg has a follicle or a um, covering around it, and that's called the follicle. And there's a hormone that stimulates it, so it matures the egg and grows it. Now, I'm going to have some of this on the next slide, so you don't need to take too many notes. LH stands for luteinizing hormone. Um, it's another key hormone, and I'll show you it in a minute. But what these two <coughs> hormones do is they tell the ovaries to mature and release one egg, possibly two, uh, there's twins, each cycle. So when a woman is, uh, when a child is conceived, um, even in utero, the, the, if it's a female, that female um, is already, by the time she's about seven months old, has almost all of the eggs that she's ever going to have. Okay? They kind of sit dormant in there until puberty, but even in utero she has. And uh, each egg then has, has a follicle, and then that once a month, the one egg gets matured, the follicle gets, you know, matured, and that's what starts the cycle. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit more. The ovaries are the, the glands that produce the estrogen and progesterone. One of them is produced before ovulation. One of them is produced after ovulation. And these are the two hormones that we really look for. Um, those are the two that are synthetically used in the birth control pill. Sometimes it's just estrogen, sometimes it's progesterone, but it's never natural, it's synthetic, which are really just chemicals. And, and those have play a part in a number of things. So what I'm gonna do now is, this is a slide that, um, that FEM put up, and it's, it's, I hope that you'll understand where I'm getting it. This is the underlying what's happening inside of a woman that causes all of these biomarkers to appear so she can observe them. And it has to do with the fact that when the birth control pill suppresses these hormones, it suppresses ovulation and it damages a woman's health. So you have this slide um, as one, but I'm gonna actually um, transition it so you can actually see what's happening. So the first um, hormone that's released, and, and what you're going to see here is there's a beautiful dance or rhythm of these hormones. So what this is showing is a 30-day chart. So you know, here's week one, week two, week three, week four, plus two. So there's a 30-day um, chart, if you will. Um, a woman's normal length of her cycle could be, and there's different different gauges based on which method you're using, but 24 to 36 days would be considered normal. Okay, so this is just a 30 day, it makes it easy. And what you're seeing here is what's happening with the egg and the, ov and the ovary, 
And down here is what's happening with those four hormones we just talked about. So, the, and it's like a relay race. And the key here is the hormones, we need the right levels at the right time in order to have health. And when some of those are out of order, either quantity or timing, there are issues. The way the birth control companies resolve the issues is to just shut them all off. The way good medicine deals with those is to try and understand um, what levels are there and how do we adjust that. So the first hormone that's released is follicle stimulating hormone and it stimulates the follicle to produce estrogen. So this would be the egg, you know, and once a month um, when the follicle stimulating hormone is released from the brain, a few of the eggs out of her, uh, let me just say about 300,000 is what she's got left by the time of puberty. Uh, she starts off somewhere between 600,000 and a million, you know, when they're, when they're all created. But um, one of those, a few of those will start maturing and the follicle or the sac around it starts developing until one becomes dominant. So in this case, let's just say this is the dominant egg with the follicle around it. And this follicle stimulating hormone is developing that sac and that sac is producing estrogen. So here's the levels of a normal woman. And what you'll start seeing is, hmm, you know, we've all kind of heard that somewhere in the middle of your cycle is when you ovulate. So you're gonna notice that if this is 20 or this is 30 days, you know, here's about day 14 or 15. And there's, you know, there's some spikes, not a lot. But what happens is it this follicle starts producing estrogen. And then what estrogen does is in this, it's the dominant hormone that's happening, you know, once if this is the beginning of a woman's cycle, you know, here she's probably bleeding. And then all of a sudden estrogen starts increasing and increasing and increasing. And what that does at some point is it kicks off this third hormone called luteinizing hormone or LH. Very, very key hormone because what that does is it triggers ovulation. And if you look at this, here's the luteinizing hormone and there is a surge. It's not a gradual, it's a spike. This is something we can measure with in like the symptohormonal methods or with monitors to say, Soon as that spike hits, you know you're close, 12 to 24 hours away from ovulation. But what happens is this follicle is growing and growing and growing, the eggs inside it. And then once the LH um, is released, it triggers ovulation. What happens is that follicle bursts. You know, the other burst you have in a woman's life is when she gives birth to a baby. But it's, a, it's an event. It's a main event. It happens internally, so we don't think of it that way, but it is. So what happens is that burst happens. The egg then is going to travel down the fallopian tubes until it either meets a sperm in, in the fallopian tubes or else it just goes through the, um, to the uterus <laughs> and shed with the menses. This follicle, though, this empty follicle, is actually starts to produce progesterone and that continues into the second part of the woman's cycle so the, pre the predominant hormone here is progesterone okay? and then eventually this all disintegrates and again it, it just goes away 
Now, the reason for showing you this is that this is all invisible, it's all internal. But what we see are the effects of this happening. When this doesn't happen, we have clues as to what the problem is with any of the gynecological problems that a woman might have. So what I'm going to do for a second here is I'm going to just take that off. Now, you don't have this on your handout, but I put it here. I wanted you to see what artificial birth control or hormonal birth control does. When a woman is prescribed the hormonal birth control or any hormonal birth control, whether it's the pill, the patch, the IUD, um, uh, the implant, what those do is they emit a continuous low dose of estrogen or estrogen and progesterone. It depends on, you know, there's a combination pill. And um, what, what that does then is it suppresses all of these things that are needed for a healthy woman. So it's like a blanket, a fog, if I will. Or I call it a contraceptive blanket that suppresses all of this healthy stuff from happening. So by doing that, there is no ovulation. Now, the woman doesn't really have a menstrual period. She thinks she does, and so do the doctors. But what's actually happening, and I don't know if you're familiar, but you know, in a birth control pill, for example, you have the pack of like 28 days worth of pills. The last week or so are placebos. The reason they're there is because just like a pill pack, you know, every morning you get up half sleepy, you open your pill pack, take Monday's pills, then Tuesday's, then Wednesday's. Well, with the birth control pill, they did the same thing. So, so as not to be confused, they just put the placebo pills in for those last seven days. The issue is when, when those placebos are there, even that low dose of estrogen or estrogen and progesterone is gone. So um, there's a breakthrough bleeding because at least a little bit of estrogen will build up a little bit of the, the uh, endometrium but so that you can shed that. But now there is just no ovulation. I'm going to leave it at that for now. But what I'm going to kind of tell you is this rise in estrogen, this is what we check for when we check cervical mucus. Cervical mucus is going to tell us what's happening with this estrogen level. And then with the temperature or the thermal piece, the thermal piece has to do with this progesterone because we have a higher temperature which is actually a part of that what's happening with the progesterone. So the first part of your cycle is estrogen. The second part is progesterone. And what this hormonal birth control pill does is it just suppresses the whole thing. Now, the reason besides, um, you know, the church says it's wrong, that this is important and something that I think women are starting to realize, as are their fiancés and spouses, is that can't be healthy, you know, for the woman. And it gives us a way to be convicted that if a woman is on, the, on any kind of hormonal birth control, you know, maybe she has to think about getting off. And it's something that I think you can do. And more and more women are wanting to do that anyway, especially with the natural, you know, everything natural. But what this shows is the health hormone connection that says estrogen and progesterone affect more than just your reproductive system. So two key things other than all of these that it affects is particularly our, a woman's bones and her brain cells. And the reason that this is really uh, critical, especially now, is, uh, I'm going to jump to this slide, is because one in three women are on the pill for non-contraceptive reasons. 
And this starts as early as puberty, because what happens when a young gal starts, um, you know, enters puberty and, and starts to get her cycle, there are um, symptoms that sometimes are pretty bad and she wants to resolve. And the standard of care for most of these, even in a young uh, gal in her teens who's started puberty, is the birth control pill. So, you know, it says when hormones are imbalanced or at insufficient levels. Now, this could happen without, you know, just naturally. So just like maybe you have too much, um, you know, iron in your body or too much zinc, or too much sugar, and an adjustment needs to be made, what uh, the fertility awareness folks want to say is if you're experiencing some of these things, rather than just be put on the pill, let's look at the cause instead of the symptoms. And you could look at the, those hormones. You, we can easily know the hormone levels and see if they're at insufficient levels or they're too high. But because a lot of doctors, even today, um, wouldn't even think of that. Little by little, it's changing, but wouldn't think about it. Um, even if we can make headway into convincing, I'm just going to say, you know, uh, couples getting married, and it'd be great if we can go earlier. By the time they go to the doctor, they have to actually put up the fight with a lot of the doctors um, because the doctors are just normally going to think, number one, we're Catholic and we're old-fashioned, and um, number two, it's the rhythm method, and then, you know, they don't know the truth. So it becomes really kind of difficult. So uh, just like facts really works with healthcare professionals, we all have to do our part in this um, so that it really does work. Because if the, if the doctor puts the young gal on the birth control pill, her acne is going to go away. So I don't know if you can recall from that um, chart when we were looking at the history. In 1957, that's when the birth control pill was approved. But for, for the treatment of acne, it was only three years later in 1960 that it was approved for birth control. Um, you know, certainly when you're on the pill, you don't have as much cramping, you don't bleed as much, you don't bleed as long, because you're not actually ovulating. So um, those are some main reasons that, that we think that we can actually convince women, and women are being convinced more and more that they don't want to put these chemicals into their bodies. Because again, they're not hormones, they're synthetic hormones, which are actually chemicals. I'm going to keep going unless somebody's going to wants to stop me. I know I'm just going to kind of keep plugging through. Doctor, one question uh, mentioned before about infertility rising amongst women and men. What do you think is the main cause of that rise of infertility amongst men and women today? We don't know. We don't know if it's like in the water or if, you know, there's just been so much contraception, you know, and, and hormonal. Um, chemicals if that's happening we do know some of the causes are um you know couples are getting married a little bit later so the the older you get the less um eggs you have to be fertilized and and the lower the quality of both egg and sperm so that's one of it but an interesting other thing is we talk about um uh, hormones you know that's your endocrine system and um, what they're finding is a big cause of the infertility may be obesity. And I don't know if you see TV where they have some of this, they have um, the, gut, the gut medications, you know, how do we cleanse our gut? 
they're saying that um, this is just a whole new area of medicine where they're looking at those things. But, um, so I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's about what we know. It's kind of interesting that we never had to worry as much about that, especially in pre-cana. We worried about helping couples not get pregnant. No, <laughs> we're helping them to get pregnant. So um, one of the things, again, with FEM is Anna Halpin realized if, if we really want to get more, you know, evangelize and get more women, you know, let's, let's take a little bit of the Catholic out just by not being explicit, but we're still practicing good Catholic medicine. But she developed an app, and it's a, it's a pretty attractive app. Um, couples like it. So these are just a couple different screenshots of it. You know, and you can see it looks very feminine, and it, it can be shared with a, a partner, spouse, fiance. Um, but here you're looking at, you know, um, the day of the month and what day in your cycle you are. And this one's not as clear, so I'm going to jump to the second one. So whenever we're working with fertility awareness, there's usually three um, goals that you might have, basic ones. You're either wanting to achieve pregnancy, wanting to avoid pregnancy, or you just want to know for the sake of your health. So you have to indicate, okay, are you currently pregnant, breastfeeding, you know, postnatal, menopause? None of the above would be if you're um, a teenage girl just learning this. And that's kind of the hope that, you know, whether it's in a health class or a, a religious ed class somewhere, we can get young women and their mothers to buy in. It's a really tough thing because if the mom doesn't, hasn't embraced the church's teaching and she herself was on birth control, she may not pull her daughter into this because it's a little bit of iodine. Um, okay, so here's another aspect of the FEM app where you can see, like many of the methods, you have to qualify or you have to identify or describe what is your bleeding like? Is it light? Is it medium? Is it heavy? Is it spotting? Is it brown? Every one of them matters and helps you determine whether you're fertile or not and whether you're healthy or not. And then you have that cervical mucus, which is really just, you know, a fluid that a woman can easily observe um, when she goes to the, to the restroom. But is it dry? Is it um, pasty? Is it moist? Or is it slippery? Slippery is when you're probably the most fertile you're going to be. It's the kind of uh, fluid that the sperm absolutely loves. And so that's what we're checking for. And that's how the cervical mucus for the symptothermal and symptohormonal method, this is their main indicator. And it's something that a woman can do every day, but you have to chart it. And then, of course, here's a, um, uh, you know, where a woman is actually checking her um, multiple cycles. And I think that's her temperature she's checking. So that's a little bit of the attraction of FEM. We say it's a little more modern. Women like it a little bit more than the old traditional methods. But they're all starting to come up now with, with uh, apps that make them um, really attractive. So for you, what I thought is, okay, if you're in a position that, you know, you are preparing a young couple or you're um, working with young adults and they ask you questions about this or you have an opportunity uh, to move them towards fertility awareness, natural family planning. You know, a couple things you might want to think about is, is this woman or couple really ready to make the decision to start using NFP or fertility awareness-based method? 
knowing that it's not necessarily easy. You know, we don't want to make that sell because you're changing a whole habit. You're deciding that every morning now when I wake up, I'm doing these things. I'm, I'm observing, I'm charting, and then later in the day, I'm doing the same thing. Um, so we don't want to give them a false sense of, of what this really is. We want them to learn for themselves and say, yeah, I, I'm willing to do this. Another thing I wanted to make the, a comment about doing the um, pre-cana, because we have, um, uh, we're in Manhattan especially, we get lots of doctors and medical professionals. And I can't remember if I had told you this, early on when you know we would try and push a little harder than I think we should have, they would push back because for all of the negative um, consequences of the birth control, and I mean, I could, you know, you've got depression, you've got migraine headaches, you've got bloating, you can find someone who doesn't have any of those and have or have them when they're not on birth control. So it's a tough sell. Um, you know, the woman is going to have to decide which option or method is best. And the, the bottom line there is there is no one best method or option. It all depends on that particular woman or couple. So if she's just getting married, she's in her 20s, uh, both husband and wife are working, it might be very easy for her to pick up uh, a symptothermal method where she could take her temperature every morning. But if she's a mom who's got two kids who are in school and she's also working in addition to her husband, her mornings are probably so crazy already, the last thing she could think of is taking her temperature in the morning and checking her cervical mucus. So some of it has to do with, you know, what is best for that woman. The same thing is all of the methods check certain things, depending on a woman's makeup, you know, she may be using what, if she researched all of the methods and said, I think I'm gonna use the Marquette method. And she used it. Marquette method has a, a little bit more of a focus on progesterone. But if that's not the way her um, body's makeup is, she may not be as successful with it as she is if she uses another method. So some of it is trial and error, and they need to kind of commit themselves to learning about this. Okay. And key is, you know, what can a woman or a couple commit to today, not in five years? And the reason we bring that up is some women say, oh, my mom and my sister, you know, they both struggled with infertility, so I probably will. So I need, I need to presume that I'm going to be infertile. Um, and then they choose a method because of that. Like they might choose the Creighton method, which is a little more comprehensive, time-consuming, and expensive. But the thing is, is if you don't show any signs now, why don't you start with something simpler and have a simple lifestyle? Because as soon as you get into the habit of one method, it's easy to switch. And we're seeing that with young women now. In the older days, you know, you'd find a method and you'd keep that and you'd never change. Now, not so today. So the woman would have to decide which of these biomarker observations and charting do they want to do and what fits into the schedule. So there's two kinds of, uh, two key determinant, determinants, I think. The first one is, I'm going to do the bottom one. There's a more subjective biomarker, which is the cervical mucus. It is the best because it allows us to know um, when you can get pregnant, when that sperm can survive, and it's just very observable. Um, but it's subjective. So you're actually, as you see, you had to uh, decide, you know, is my, is my fluid uh, sticky? Is it slippery? Is it pasty? Is there none? And 
that mucus changes based on certain conditions. If you're on medications, it may change. If you're sick, it may change. If you have an infection, it may change. It might sometimes be yellow. There's allowances for all of that, but sometimes you're not quite, you're not 100%, which is why some women say, let me get something like this, the temperature or the hormone test, because they're objective, they're quantifiable. So for example, your temperature, you're gonna take it, well, you're either gonna take it every morning or you're gonna put on a, um, uh, a wearable that gives it to you. And it's a, it's a number that you know every, you know, every day I've been at you know, 97.4, 97.4, 97.4, and then I move up to uh, 98. And you know you've had the shift, you've ovulated, and now you know, you know you wait a day or two and then you're not fertile again. Um, that more objective, certain uh, measurement is what some women will want. But again, you see that nowhere do we usually recommend just taking temperature. We do that with the um, cervical mucus. Another nice um, uh, uh, mark, biomarker that women are starting to use with both FEM and the Marquette method, and I should have put that's the symptom hormonal one, is you check your cervical fluid because it's good for a woman to know anyway. Um, but you also can do hormone tests. And the two hormone tests you can do is one is to check for that LH spike. So you know that a couple days, you know, while you think that, okay, I'm coming close to ovulation, you do a couple of the LH sticks and you know that if one of those days there, you're gonna have that LH surge and that within 12 to 24 hours, you're gonna ovulate. So that certainty is really um, key for someone. I will say here, just from our experience, what we've seen, um, now that couples are getting married a little bit older, you know, we're more into the you know 28 to 34 range, they're not so worried about getting pregnant. So back, you know, 50 years ago, women were getting married at 19, 20, 21. And by the time they were 25 years old, they might've already had three or four kids. And they're saying, geez, I've got another 20 years of, of my fertile life. You know, I can't keep doing this. Now that they're getting married a little older, they're throwing a little caution to the wind saying, you know, I don't want my life to be controlled by every day having to, um, you know, either take my temperature or check my cervical mucus. I kind of have an idea, and they'll use the, the wearable technology, the Fitbits or Apple Watches, to get a good sense of when they're fertile. And, you know, if they get pregnant, they get pregnant. But again, the older you get, you know, the less um, quality of your sperm and eggs. So, um, you know, we've seen it all over the board. I don't know that, I guess the thought is, is we don't really want to do a selling job on them. Uh, we want to be convicted with, with what we say. The different methods have different costs. Um, some of the providers, they have insurance that covers uh, the fertility training, at least. Creighton and, and FEMDU, um, because there are doctor's offices involved. I want to say one other thing before I put that up. So one other thing that we do is cost isn't usually the big deal for many people. For some it is, and our office tries to help. But we still do every July uh, NFP Awareness Week, which focuses around that July 25th uh, when Humani Vitae was uh, promulgated. We will do an NFP Awareness Giveaway, where we are just as happy as anything to give away um, training. And what we've been doing is keeping the couples that come to our pre and we send them a flock note or an email that says, 
you know, here we are again. So a couple may not be ready before they get married because it's such a stressful time. They don't want to add this. But maybe a year or two later, they do. And a part of the thought is, and the reason um, understanding that slide about the one in three women are already on birth control for other reasons, um, you know, there's just, we can't give, make any judgment about that if they were on it. Um, the other thing that we watch for is there some, is there a teacher or educator that's certified in the area who can teach the couple? So we're going to talk a little bit about the technology, but even though there is technology that the woman can use to help her know when she's fertile, uh, we really still believe that the education makes it more successful. Um, some women are looking for what femtech options work with the method. So we're going to talk about, you know, the wearables that are the temp drop armband or the auto wristband. Um, and then one other key thing that we're realizing when, you know, surveys are done about why, why women use or don't use uh, fertility awareness, you know, their personal motivation is really key and then their partner support. So again, if you're working with couples, you know, a, a lot of times if you work with the young man and kind of help him to understand these synthetic hormones are not something you really, if you love your you know, future wife, you know, do you really want her to put those in her body? Uh, some people are motivated anyway by the natural and, and that won't be a hard sell, but if you can get him on board, it makes the hugest difference because practicing it by yourself is really hard. So, um, so Father Chris, I actually checked with uh, data to say, okay, because we've had some issues with getting um, uh, PDFs email. Uh, we couldn't figure out why this didn't come, but I, what I was going to say is I can try and get you this slide in another format. This one isn't in your current packet. Um, if you want to take a picture of that slide and I will send it to you, but my thought is for you in a pastoral role, thinking about that woman or couple's first decision of do I want to do this? You know, are you going to move her at all or move them at all? So a couple things to keep, realize. Number one, getting off of the pill is and can be very scary if she's on it. She's come to rely on that and never having to give it a second thought. And she may not even be aware of all of this uh, damaging health consequences. So keep it in mind. You may have to go slower with her. Second thing is if she does decide, yeah, I want to try that. The best way, the next best thing once she uh, links up with an educator is they're going to suggest to her that she abstain from sex for one to three months. Now, the reason is um, for the three main methods, you know, the, the, the cervical mucus, the symptothermal, and the symptohormonal, in those three methods, you're or you're going to be working with your cervical mucus. And it's a fluid that, you know, just is a part of the woman. When you are engaged in the sex act and that pre-sex sexual intercourse, there are two other fluids that would get mixed in that might confuse her. You know, there is the seminal fluid from the man, but then there is the arousal fluid from the woman. And it's kind of tough enough just understanding your own cervical fluid but when you add these what happens is you lose confidence and you get confused and you might just say this is too hard to do 
So we don't push it. The, the educators say, look, we think this is the best thing. Is if not for three months, how about starting with one? Um, sometimes that's a real turnoff to, to couples. And then the third thing is what you're asking this couple to do is to commit to a new habit that includes charting her cycles every single day. That's the only way it works. It could be digital. It could be with wearable technology, which makes it even easier, more convenient. But nevertheless, it is a daily thing. So a couple suggestions and insights for your consideration. You know, what is your starting point or the couple's starting point? You know, are they somebody who's grown up in a family of faith where they're willing to listen to the, the faith side, to, you know, why God uh, made us this way? Um, is it somebody who's a science or, a me you know, medical guru that maybe you can appeal to them in that regard with the FACTS um, website, you know, Fertility Awareness Appreciation, to teach the science, because it's really science-based. Um, remember, the culture has a strong hold on all of these people. Even if you raised your kids, you know, as soon as they leave your house and the culture hits them, it could be a good or a negative. You know, the, the negative is um, they think that natural or artificial birth control is just fine and it is the responsible thing to do. But again, as we get more into uh, things like the ecology, you know, can you, can you get them in that way? And then the other thing is, you know, is this somebody who's really into technology? And maybe one thing you do is you become really observant. If you're sitting with them, um, whether across the, the desk from them or uh, preparing them for marriage or with young adults, you know, look at their wrist. Are they wearing an Apple Watch or a Fitbit? And does that allow you to start a conversation? And I'll show you, there will be a couple slides as we go forward. But, you know, just that might be your opening. But you want to know your own comfort level with this. If you're not sure, you know what, just send them to our office. We have that web page. We put enough on it so that we don't, when we get the phone calls, it's easier for us to take them there and let the tough text be on there. Um, and then you can send them to the other websites that we've talked about or Facebook pages. So, you know, you've seen the facts. That's a great web page to send them to. The only thing with facts is they don't put a lot with them because some of their charts they've had from years ago where they didn't have them on there. Um, but you'll see additional uh, recommendations on the next slide. And again, probably one of the best if you've got a incredible woman or couple who uses this and can speak to it. The best thing for young couples, if you can find a young couple versus an older couple, uh, again, millennials don't necessarily trust the baby boomers anymore. They don't see that um, authority figure anymore in us. And then finally, just something for you to consider. Um, you know, there's a model of behavior change that, um, you know, there are ways that uh, uh, the social sciences Change, uses to change behavior. In the medical model, this is a model that they use to change behavior. And their um, method is, can you move them one tick? So for example, if somebody's a smoker, let's use this, you know, at some point, you know, they're pre-contemplative. They're not even thinking about changing. They're comfortable with where they are. The next step is, can you get them thinking about it? Kind of like, huh, I wonder if I ought to change. Then they start preparing, then they make the change, then they're either stable um, or they relapse and then have to come back up again. But if you can move them one tip, and that one tip might be, will you go and just look at this website or read this book or talk to this couple 
That's all you need to do, and that might get them started. Any other questions on this one before I move forward? Okay, so getting educated. Now, getting educated is only one aspect. So even in Precana, you know, we tried to build in a lot of uh, fertility awareness, NFP, and I mean, um, and we do evaluations and some people say, I love it. And some people say, why'd you show us that? I think that's outdated, and, you know, um, and, and we realize trying to give them more and more and more, if they're not open, they're not gonna start. But getting educated is the first piece practicing it and, and form, getting your will through grace to at least try it is a second thing. And just kind of thinking about this getting educated, you know, back when um, I had up the uh, level of church teaching, and I remember uh, 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 Dr. Gallardi's, Richard Gallardi saying, you know, what we can expect from the believer is strive to build that into their um their life. And the one thing you can ask them to do, and you can, if you can give them homework for marriage prep, great, you can do it, um, is to ask them to, you know, at least inform themselves. So if they go to a class, let their free will take over and let them decide this isn't for me, because maybe they'll come back to it. But getting educated is only the one uh, piece. Uh, Right now, we're not doing in-person sessions. A lot of people are starting to prefer the instructor-led, and this is the probably the preeminent way that we're doing um, fertility education uh, learning. It's just the way we're doing it now, whether it's Zoom or some other platform like Zoom. There is online self-paced learning. Uh, it's not preferred by us. By some people, they may prefer this if they really you know, are only doing it out of a requirement. Now, I will say Cardinal Dolan is one who, he is not big on mandating things. And I know a lot of, um, uh, of, of the 177 dioceses, I think only 12 or so, if I remember from my last number, mandate a full NFP course. Um, we've seen the, the pros and cons of it. Many priests will ask their couples to do it. And at that point, there's a relationship where the priest actually has interaction, which is probably better. But um, the other thing is when some couples are required to go and they sit in, for example, in-person sessions, you know, there are consequences. So if there's a class of, let's just say, five couples and you've got one of the, I'm going to say, male spouses not wanting to be there, it really ruins it for everybody. So um, I would say this is probably the idea of what we're doing now. So as far as getting educated, here are some recommendations we have, you know, send them to our website. I'm really working hard that we keep it updated. Uh, Fem Health, there's free training there. The Gianna Center where Dr. Ann Nolte is. Dr. Ann is, um, uh, she's a wonderful Catholic doctor. We, we uh, focus on her in our Precana video. Um, she's, they're always willing to help couples, especially from a financial perspective. Whenever we have people with infertility issues or um, issues where perhaps it was a, uh, it's a tough pregnancy and the woman or the couple goes into a center and that center is suggesting abortion, we always get them involved and help, help us to help the couple to make the, the decision for life. 
Natural Womanhood. This is another organization. Um, if you can, you know, star that on your handout. It's run by a Catholic man and his wife. Um, it looks very, uh, it looks secular, but they're Catholic through and through. And it's just got good stuff that uh, is attractive to young people. And then there's Catholic digital and social media groups out there, Facebook groups. So um, if you just Google Catholic NFP, for example, or um, uh, NFP groups out there, you're going to find Catholic temp drop groups, Catholic Creighton groups, Catholic Kandara groups, Catholic temp drop groups. These are all kind of terms I'll, I'll share in a couple minutes. But it's a place where couples and women share the reality of their stories. So if they go to a pre-cana class and uh, somebody's saying, yeah, you know, uh, NFP, it's the greatest thing. Well, for that couple, it may have been. But there are couples, especially if both are not really on board and committed, where, you know, their marriage is in trouble because they're both, you know, they're not on the same page with uh, NFP or fertility awareness. So these are groups that, you know, they could be helpful because you've got somebody who, you know, women and couples sharing with other women couples, the real stories. But on the other end, it could also be negative. So uh, again, you know, if that's where somebody's at and they like working with uh, on Facebook and social media, you know, if there's no reason you can't uh, point them there. So let me take a break here and catch my breath. So something that we think is a positive is the emerging and evolving femtech industry. So what's happened in the past, let's just say five years, and it's changing rapidly, are um, uh, this femtech is being developed that is actually focusing on women's, women's reproductive health and women's overall health. And it's coming in the forms of three different areas, I would say. The first area, and it's these top three, are wearables, okay? So from a normal Apple Watch or Fitbit Watch that has either a fertility awareness app or just a health app built in to more specialized wearables. So for example, this right here is a, it's called the AVA bracelet, and it's a sensor, it's a bracelet you wear at night, and it collects not only your temperature, and it's not basal body temperature, but it's uh, your skin temperature, but also things like your pulse and um, you know your respiratory rate, your sleep sleep uh, numbers, and it syncs automatically with the smartphone. This one actually goes with it. Um, it's uploaded to the cloud, and then what happens is over time, over days and weeks and months, the data that is collected from all of those hours that you're wearing it. Not only do you know more about when you're going to be fertile or not, but it uses algorithms to, I'm going to say somewhat predict, but probably better than the word predict is identify either fertile and infertile times or areas of concern from a health perspective. Okay. Not much different than wearing a pacemaker and things like that, where, you know, if somebody's got uh, a pacemaker on, you know, his, he's got uh, also, um, uh, a watch and a smartphone, as does his spouse. So if something's going wrong, she's notified and she's calling the doctor. Uh, um, it's all developing. This is a really getting to a very um, popular wearable. It's called TempDrop. So if you look at this, this is actually a thermometer. This is uh, an armband, a soft material that the woman puts a little bit above her um, elbow and she wears every night. 
So it works with the symptothermal method. So with the symptothermal method, prior to having a wearable like this, you would every morning get up at the same time as what you should do um, after having at least slept through four hours of the night, take your temperature and write it down. You can also take your temperature and put it into an app. What the TempDrop allows you to do is it's automatically going to sync via Bluetooth to your to the to any app that's a symptothermal has a symptothermal method. And what it's doing is really capturing all of this data. And not only do you know when you're fertile that month, but every time, every night you wear that, more data is collected and it's getting better and better with identifying your fertile period, your infertile time, but also anything that might be going wrong health-wise. So these work along with those manual methods that you're using. Okay, so wearables is probably the most growing field. Um, knowing that, you know, the Apple Watch and the Fitbit, I mean, look at it's telling you, you know, 17 days until you're fertile. You can do some planning. Now, we would say not to rely totally on this, but if you can just do one of those methods, like the cervical fluid method, and this becomes almost a second check, because what these wearables are, for the most part, doing is checking um, temperature. Okay. The apps, so this one here is just the... Um, FEM app, there are over a thousand apps now that either check, you know, just plain old start and end of your menstrual uh, cycle, um, some of the symptoms, whether you have, you know, uh, you know, um, more bleeding than normal, um, you know, whether you have, um, you know, uh, bloated, bloatedness, any of the symptoms that you might have. And it actually comes up with, based on uh, their algorithm, what steps you ought to take. So they're not going away. Okay? They're only getting better. These two down here are what's called um, home monitoring or hormone monitoring. So when we talked about FEM and Marquette um, having that very objective or certain data point that helps you know for sure, yes, I ovulated or yes, um, you know, my temperature rose and now I'm not, I'm infertile. Marquette uses this, it's the clear blue monitor. They would call it the gold standard because you will actually use a urine stick and then you put it into the monitor and it tells you, you know, whether you're, you're at the peak day, whether you're fertile or infertile. This is another device. It's, it's just coming um, really into the market now called the Myra where it's actually able, uh, and I don't know if you can see inside of here, it measures your LH so that you know, you know, did you hit that spike so that you've ovulated? But it's also going to start checking estrogen to also help you. There is a stick, you know, some of them are like the pregnancy sticks where it'll tell you right on there what your levels are. But that's what Femtech is. It refers to any technology that aims to improve the lives of women. It includes just checking your fertility digitally. And you even do that just with the app. So, for example, if you think about when women would chart and they would literally just write on a paper chart, every month you have charts. If you've been doing this for 10 years, you've got lots of paper charts. Now, if you want to share it with your doctor, it becomes very difficult for her or him to actually take that and see a more comprehensive view. If you do it on an app, it's almost like spreadsheets. You can look at that data in better ways and actually make some decisions based on the data. But another key thing, and you know, this might be you know uh, a little different for, for you as men, but 
you know, Femtech's breaking the taboo around menstruation because um, women are more comfortable talking about these things now. And I mean, if you went on social media, you would see it. But um, a part of the reason is with Femtech is a larger proportion of women are at the helm and they're starting to develop these products for women. So uh, it's an exciting time, you know, and you just have all these things to be able to share with women. So these are some sample digital charts. I just pulled a couple. Uh, I think this is probably FEM, but what you can see are these are very different cycle one, two, you know, month one, month two, month three, month four. So when you look over time, you see patterns and that's what's key. So if your bleeding is consistently, you know, four to five days, somebody else's might be six to seven days. You know, you'll know when something's wrong. Um, so when you look overall, it's helpful. Here's a chart where this is a temperature. So you can see that when you ovulate, and this is the temperature line, you know, your temperatures are lower at that first part of your cycle or your pre-ovulatory cycle. Once you ovulate, the temperatures are risen and they stay risen until you're actually ready to um, uh, uh, have your menses again. This, I'm not quite sure what this is. This might be an additional, like a, um, uh, an ovulation predictor kit um, where you can just like the LH strips, you can actually take uh, use those strips to figure out when did you have that LH surge. And those are all additional indicators to help you know when you ovulated. For paper charts, you know, there are stickers and there are stamps, obviously color matters. So you know that this is when a woman is bleeding. This, the green here, this is a Creighton chart. These are all days where you're not infertile. So if you want to engage in the sex act and not get pregnant, these are the days you can plan for. And of course, these days are high estrogen days. Their, their symbol in Creighton is a baby, and it's a stamp they put on. Um, Femme uses the color blue because uh, it's estrogen. I don't know that we're gonna have a chance to talk too much about the peak day um, and what this, these numbers mean. I'm afraid I'm gonna run out of time. But peak day, just real quickly, is the last day that a woman would see any kind of cervical mucus that would be very slippery and fertile. You don't know it until after peak day because you don't know, you know, if that was your last or not. But usually when a woman experiences that last day of her, of that really slippery, um, liquidy cervical fluid, 98% of the times ovulation occurs within two days of that peak day of that um, cervical fluid. So there's a count of three days when you don't engage in the sex act because uh, there's your two days that you, you know, to account for the, the 2% that you might be pregnant. And then because the egg can survive for 24 hours after it's ovulated, um, you have to do another day. Um, your, a woman's fertile window um, or a couple's combined fertile window is really about six to nine days. And the six days comes from the man's sperm can live for five days in, in fertile cervical fluid and the egg can live for one day. So you just combine those and it's six days. However, there's a longer period for days that you're potentially pregnant because of you know things that happen. So that's really more like um, nine to 11 days. It could be as long as 11 days that you know if you really cannot get pregnant um, you may have to abstain for that many days. So these are just different cycles 
And, you know, when you put one up against the other, you start to see trends that helps you understand what's going on with your body. Um, here's a chart with, you can see very clearly, this is a temperature chart where this line here is the day that the woman ovulated. Temperatures are lower before then. When, when you ovulate, all of a sudden that corpus loop or that follicle um, bursts open, starts producing progesterone, which causes a rise in temperature. And that's called the luteal phase because that follicle, after it releases the egg, is now called the corpus luteal. Corpus being a body, luteal being meaning yellow, it's a yellow body. I guess it has to do with the color of that fluid or hormone. Just a few more sample charts. Again, here's one, you know, really the, we see that the woman has the follicular phase when the follicle is growing, ovulation, and then the luteal phase. Um, so this is estrogen is being um, the dominant hormone and here progesterone is. And on different charts, you can chart many different things. Um, here's a chart where you're charting colors to chart your cervical fluid. Is it watery? You know, is it sticky? Is it none? Um, so you chart that along with the temperature. And if you think about it, if a woman really starts doing this, she knows her body very well. And that's pretty big now, body literacy. These are key biomarkers. So here's another one with temperature. Um, here's one where you're just charting the kind of fluid you have. And again, this is done really just by going to the to the restroom and either on a piece of toilet paper or just, you know, by sensing it, um, uh, you know, or, or in, in the woman's undergarments, you know what it is and you get better and better each time you check it. One additional biomarker that's not used very much, but it's what position your cervix is in. So your cervix is open and soft before ovulation. And this is really a touch and feel kind of thing, which is why um, a lot of women are not comfortable doing it. Um, some some uh, people and organizations also believe by really touching, you know, you're 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 opening up the avenue for infection. So not all not all believe in this one. So I think I'm going to wrap up on that with this last one. Okay, there are companies out there. All of the you know the thousands of apps. There's certain ones that are more mainstream, and I didn't put any of them up there because I don't want to bias you. The only one I did put up there was the FEM app, because we, we know we can endorse that. But there's also companies like Ovia. Ovia Health is one company, just to give you a, a sense of, oops, Ovia, um, uh, a sense of what's happening out there. Ovia Health delivers personalized and data-driven health solutions for fertility, pregnancy, and parenting. So these are cropping up now more and more, and the idea is I'm going to uh, see if I can get a woman to use our Ovia app while she's, um, you know, either trying to avoid pregnancy or maybe even achieve pregnancy, but check her fertility. But then she's going to be so comfortable with my app that when she's pregnant, she's going to continue using my app to see how things are going inside with the baby. And I'm con she's connected to my this health uh, organization because she has support on the other end of it. So as she is experiencing morning sickness, there's somebody on the other end supporting her and it carries her right into parenting. And there are so many apps for moms now with parenting. 
So these, these will continue to develop. And their approach is that they're going to thread through your whole life cycle, the nap for fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood. And the thing with organizations like this is now they're really marketing to employers for their women employees' benefits because their thought is, I want a happy mom, I want a happy woman because the healthier she is and the happier she is, <laughs> I don't know if it's the best rationale, but you know, the better employee she is. So just, just some exciting things that are happening. All right, and one more slide to wrap up. So the opportunity we see and kind of the exciting thing is all of these new developments, you can see all the negative with the technology, but you know what? It also integrates with NFP. And just observe how many young people are wearing their Apple Watches or Fitbits, and it's a, it's a way you can start a conversation. But key to wrap up this section is from a science and medical perspective, ovulation is a sign of health and it's actually considered the fifth vital sign by for women now by the medical world so not all doctors get it yet not all of them realize when you're on the birth control pill you really don't have a period but more and more we're all starting to uh, uh, get the get the word out there and you know uh, you know your other vital signs you know you, you go to the doctor and they take your temperature they take your blood pressure they take your pulse they take your respirations depending on where you are there are other vital signs for women's reproductive and men's reproductive health, ovulation is what we don't want to inhibit um, by having people on the pill. So I think that's where I finish with um, any of the biology, physiology. I'll give you a minute if you wanted to um, ask me any questions other than letting me keep going. Let me sort out my papers here. Okay. One point, just to bring it up, when Apple's new iOS system came out just recently, one of the big selling features for it um, was the ability to track your ovulation cycle. So even Apple understands the attraction this has to millennials and Generation Z to be able to have something that is um, healthy and natural to uh, to be able to do this. So it really is a great a great thing for us to be able to use what is in popular culture as well that is supporting what we're talking about here this evening. So it isn't just some simply Catholic thing that we're kind of, you know, medieval ideas here. This is Apple itself as a major modern technology is using the idea of tra tracking your ovulation in your cycle as a major selling point. So there's definitely an argument now that can be made uh, in support of the church's teaching with science and technology uh, assisting us in that. You're right, you're right. I mean, the nice thing to know is this Catholics, our Catholics, our Catholic scientists and medical doctors were the ones that really knew it from the beginning, but <laughs> we, I think we keep it to ourselves, but it's, it's, it's helpful to know that, you know, we started it. <laughs> okay, so, so when do you start teaching this stuff? And, you know, again, I mean, there, there's the chastity piece, which the best thing is if we could teach us in the in in the realm of teaching about chastity and you know i mean and you know and we continually grow and you know even marriage you know when we have pre-cana and we prep for marriage it's too late but you do what you can you know you know it's a moment that god can always use but the best is if we can teach it earlier and teach it in the context of of chassis and sexuality education. So what we do when we look, let's just say, for example, at planning for our marriage preparation in pre um, you know, 
who is our audience? Who are we, who are we uh, catechizing, evangelizing? So our big audience right now is, the, you know, millennials. But we also have to be thinking about the iGeners and those not even born yet. Okay, so Gen Alpha. And the key is, how, what is their culture and how are they learning and what is the technology they're using? Um, because, unfortunately, we're competing with, with all of that stuff. So if you can kind of keep that in mind that, you know, here's, here's really, you know, the, the key audience right here. If we can get them here in religious ed or at the parish level in preaching, wherever you have the opportunity, that's best. You know, I, I think I've probably seen it, and um, my husband works a lot with the technology, and he'll always tell us, you know, um, you know, where there used to be the authority figures and a, a level of respect for, you know, your elders, it doesn't necessarily equate here. So when we have um, pre-cana couples in this realm talking about natural family planning, it, it, it's good but we really need to get more couples in this realm. And even in Precana, you know, it'd be best to have a young couple and an older couple because you've got the witness that it worked and you have a couple that says we're on the journey and we know where you are. So just something to think about. Um, our unfortunate competition with those younger people is uh, as an example, you know, they're not really gonna sit here and listen to, you know, someone like me give a lecture but what they are going to do is they're into things like chatbots and uh, Planned Parenthood. You know, when we hear that term as, as Catholics, as pro-life Catholics, um, there's somewhat of disdain because of who Planned Parenthood is. But if we can get past that and realize they have a phenomenal digital strategy, they know their audience, they have the funding, and they've developed the ways that they can market to and pull those young people in. And one is their chatbot called Roo. Um, you know, Roo kind of stands for a baby kangaroo, but I believe also it's because it's that gender neutral name. But look what it says, you know, I'm here to answer your questions about body, sex, relationships, and more from a Planned Parenthood perspective, of course. Rue answers all your awkward questions about sexual health, relationships, growing up, and more. Chatting with Rue is free and private. So go ahead and ask the things you don't want to ask out loud or the things you don't want to be judged on just by you asking the questions. So, um, I mean, ideally, you know, there's going to, we're going to have somebody in the church that's going to create something like this. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we developed the education systems, we developed the hospitals so many eons ago. You know, we're a little bit more behind in the technology arena. Uh, you know, will God send us somebody who's going to help us use some of these digital gifts to come up with a place that we've got our own kind of um, chatbot that parents can rely on that they can let their kids do? You know, you've got things like Alexa. And, you know, Alexa, you know, uh, when is it okay to have sex? And that's one of the questions here in Rue. I don't know if you can get a chance to, to look at that. Just Google Rue or Planned Parenthood Rue, just so you realize it's out there and it's meant for teens, not for anybody older. So it's a little scary. Um, what we've got, I thought might be a, a little bit of a ray of hope in renewing Catholic family life. I think there's a big push for marriage and family life. You know, we've got a long way to go, but you know, of course you always trust in the Holy Spirit. 
But I, I just, uh, this past summer was a part of a summit that was sponsored by the Peyton Institute for Domestic Church Life. It's a collective think tank uh, created by Holy Cross Ministries in collaboration with the Pastoral Solutions Institute. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we fix this? I don't know if there's a real fix, but they came up with, uh, it was a Dr. Greg Popchak and his wife, Lisa, who have been um, marriage and family proponents. He's a uh, Catholic psychologist. And um, he's looking to create a new vision. And I thought it was kind of good. He actually thought that there were three rights of calling the family the domestic church. And he said, can we think about a liturgy of domestic church life? Now, this is something we wouldn't share with other people because that, that language is foreign to them. But using the uh, the aspect of priest, prophet, and mission and uh, uh, missionary, you know, he came up with ways that our families could be really domestic churches. And it was, it was pretty interesting. He talked about, you know, first of all, you have to develop a Christian relationship within your own home. And having things like, you know, love is the main component. Can you give extravagant affection to your children and let them see your sacrificial self-giving love? Can you focus on that? The second right are the right of family rituals. And they make up what your daily or weekly or monthly life is. What they said is there are aspects of your life where you are acting as a Christian in work, play, talk, and pray. And he said a lot of good families, good Catholic families raise their kids. They go to Mass every Sunday. You know, they, they say their blessing before meals. They might even say rosary. And that's their Christian life. But they don't play together. They don't talk about these things in depth. They don't do things together, work together. Um, so it was kind of interesting to think, because, I mean, we all examine our own families and say, yep, yeah, I know what you mean. But, you know, they're looking to possibly develop this into even a um, certification program. So, you know, things are happening, I guess I want to say, on the Catholic, uh, uh, in the Catholic world. And then, of course, the right of reaching out where you do social justice, um, but that can't be all of it. That actually is the final thing that you do. So, you know, we're doing some things. This is what's being done in the home before you let your kids out and let the culture actually get to them. Some ideas and opportunities as we look to grow is, you know, the new directory for catechesis came out. Um, we're actually going to do a study group about it, but it is where Pope Francis and, and the Council for Promotion of the New Evangelization is looking for, you know, new ways. I mean, I know Pope John Paul said, you know, we need new ways, new ardor, but probably uh, a little bit more into Pope Francis' vein that says, you know, you're eventually going to get there. Um, um, and he has, you know, he follows John Paul with that law of gradualness. And instead of judging, he's pulling you along where you are. I think Cardinal Dolan's a lot like that. Theology of invitation, wherever you are, I'm just going to continue to try and, and invite you to one step more. Something else that's out there, this is uh, comes out of the FEM and World Youth Alliance, which is the human dignity curriculum. So, you know, where do we teach kids about sexuality? Um, you know, it's, it's tough because even in our Catholic schools, you're relying on the teachers to embrace really the teaching on Humanae Vitae. And we know that, you know, 95% of even Catholic parents don't buy 
So at that level, you know, it's tough to get them. We've tried doing some of the team fem and the fem training or, or just overview to parents in a parish. You know, they don't want to come. This, they, nobody wants to talk about this. It's a tough subject. But this human dignity curriculum includes an, what's called team fem, which is the fem training for teens. So you're not talking about natural family planning. You're talking just about how do I um, uh, dignify my body that God gave me. But also the human dignity curriculum is one that goes along with that that says I've got an intellect and a will. And I use those gifts that God gave me because it separates me from the animals. And, you know, there's a reason I am made in the image and likeness of God. The only thing is with this, it's secular, so God doesn't come into it. It reminds me a little bit of love and responsibility where uh, John Paul did not appeal to um, faith. Something that we did, and I just kind of stick it out there because we're trying, you know, we piloted what's called the Sister Hope chatbot in our pre cana I had to fight. I mean, nobody really cares about this stuff. It's like pushing rocks uphill, but I got it approved. And it's a company called X2AI that developed a chatbot for mental health issues. And um, uh, the, the founder of the company, a young, brilliant, genius guy, um, had to go through some um, psychotherapy while he was dealing with stress and some issues. And he, he got out of it and realized, shoot, I'm using what I learned in this talk therapy to help my friends. And then he went one step further and said, well, I'm using the same kinds of things. Why can't I standardize this and put it into a, a chat box? So we did. And then a group of religious and clergy got in touch with him and said, we could use this in the Catholic world. So it's called Sister Hope. It's both mental and spiritual help. Um, we piloted it with, um, with the Precana teams for a short period of time because it was a captive audience and I knew that we could manage it. We also had um, on the chat bot, um, the, the person can, you know, says, hi, sister, Hope, um, and she says, what can I help you with today? And, and you say, I, I'm feeling pretty lonely. My husband's not really, you know, uh, working with me on some of these issues. And so she goes through and allows you to say, um, I think I need to talk to a counselor. And we actually had a marriage and family counselor in our office that we agreed confidentially if somebody wanted to talk to him for free for 20 to 30 minutes, we could. So we got a little bit of a bite on it. We've since ended it. We need to figure out what's the better uh, place for it. I think probably Catholic Charities is. Um, but again, is this, you know, is this something we have to try and get out of our comfort zone to do? They're creating a Sister Faith chatbot. Anybody's interested, just let me know. Um, you can look a little bit more at sisterhope.org. Uh, but those are some of the things that, you know, I think we're going to start seeing. And as opposed to being fearful of them, kind of embrace them as maybe this touches that generation that I can't even, uh, you know, see how we would do it. So pastoral directives and opportunities for you and for us as church. You know, if, if we can offer the invitation and let grace work. Humane Vitae, if you read the, the section three, it's what everybody specifically is called to, what married couples are called to, what doctors are called to, uh, what scientists are called to, um, what clergy are called to. Um, those are those are good. Amoris Letizia, or the joy of love, um, that's, you know, that's the latest version of, I would say, Familiaris Consortio, where, um, you know, John Paul wrote that after the Synod on the Family. You know, Pope Francis wrote this after the two synods on the on marriage and the family. 
in these chapters, um, they're, they're not difficult reading, but what he does do in there is he supports Humani Vitae, but he also embrace, or he also endorses John Paul's law of gradualness and says, take somebody where they are and see if you can just move them. Marriage preparation is an ideal place um, to uh, where we have that moment where these people are adults now and they're making adult decisions. From a clergy perspective, you've got, I've got two um, tools that you can use. I'm going to look a little bit at this uh, the premarital investigation or the prenuptial investigation, that tool. There's a particular question that's a great teaching opportunity. And I say it's a great teaching opportunity with an exclamation point. It just directly, you know, asks the question, um, you know, can you, um, are you willing to not use artificial contraception? So I'm going to show you here, but the link's there if you want it. We also, for anybody that comes to our Archdiocese and Meritrip program, we have the priest or deacon select a premarital inventory. And their choices are either prepare and enrich or Catholic couple checkup. Now, their relationship inventories that ask about nine different categories um, where the couple needs to kind of, you know, tangibly at, answer questions about themselves and their relationship. So I'll show you a sample of that. There's one on sexual expectations and affection. Uh, the Family Life Office, you know, just know that if we can help any way, we will. We do have our annual NFP awareness giveaway in July. It's, which means it's budgeted, but if you're in a situation and somebody's kind of open to NFP, but their their obstacle is financial, please give us a call. I mean, the money is budgeted. Now, I hate to say that in these times, but we've always been able to get that uh, funding to provide some NFP training. And then, of course, the best we can do is early catechesis is for parents who are really the first formators. So, you know, the whole idea of Humana Vitae's ban against contraception really requires that we um, consider people's consciences. You know, we know from a Catholic perspective, we need to form our conscience and then we have to follow our conscience. But our conscience is not enough. It's not always right. It's our highest interior guide, but it is not the highest guide. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the teachings of the church we've got other things we can consult but there are things that obscure the voice of god in our conscience and that is probably particularly true today so i just pulled from uh, god and Spez. deep within his conscience one discovers a law which he has not laid upon himself but which he must obey this voice ever calling him to love and do what is good and avoid evil tells him inwardly at the right moment do this and shun that now Again, probably many people, um, Catholics included, and young people even coming to Meritrip, they don't hear that voice. They don't know how to access it. You know, we've got our own crisis of faith. So we have to take this a little bit carefully. Um, it often happens that conscience goes astray through ignorance, which is unable to avoid and therefore does, which is unable to avoid and does not lose its dignity. But this cannot be said of one who takes little trouble to find out what is true or good, or when conscience, which is by degrees, almost blinded through the habit of committing sins. So, I mean, I just from my experience, I, I think this is probably the bigger issue. 
I mean, the people that we have going through Kukana at least now, their parents were a part of that group that really hadn't learned about the ban on contraception or, you know, it could be a number of things. They, they could have had a clergy who said it was okay. Uh, they could have been on birth control very early on because the doctor prescribed it for whatever gynecological issue or health issue, including acne, which is the big one. So, um, but we can still call them to it, okay? What we can, you know, take the time, give them home, or give them one thing to start trying to form that conscience without judgment. So what I was talking about that you'll have access to on the premarital investigation, or it's called also the prenuptial investigation, particularly question 10. Now, this is what Father Welch had put together. It's as of 2018, it's the latest one um, on that, you know, that earlier slide. I gave you the link if you want to see it. But, um, and you know, I don't know if you talk about this, Father Chris, with, with the guys or, or who does, but uh, let me just say question 10, um, item C. So both the bride and the groom separately are asked these questions. Now, and I'll, I'll add what I know, but Father Chris may have to join in here. Um, uh, whether all of the, the text or things on that prenuptial investigation are actually asked and gone through, I think there's some leeway with the clergy member doing it. Um, some priests I know uh, start this at different points in time and they, it takes them their whole marriage preparation time with the couple before they actually get through it all. They choose different times in their preparation to ask certain questions. And this would be one of them, see, you know, do you, know, you, do you understand and agree without reservation to give your spouse the right to intimate relations, open to procreation without contraception and to see the fulfillment of obligations related to the Catholic religious and moral upbringing of children. You know, that's, that's a tough one to bring up. Now, parenthesis was in the text. I bolded it just for you to be able to see. Um, I think, you know, if you can look at it as a learning, as an opportunity to teach, if you're, if you're at talking to the male, you know, can you, you know, is there a focus that says, you know, you know, think about Cardinal Dolan's, um, uh, ecological piece, you know, God has built such a beautiful body. Do you really want your, your loving wife to, to put those chemicals in her body? And then for the, for the woman, you know, um, uh, you know, this helps you kind of, I don't want to say control, but moderate the, the sexual urge of your husband and to let him see you not as an object, but about someone who's got a beautiful body. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's any other comments on this. I, you know, I, I just know it exists and I, I, I know I've talked with Father Welch about it. I've been at a pastor convention where this, this was tough. I, I came after him to talk about this and, and, um, you know, I don't know really what, what, uh, how much it's used or how it's used with the clergy. Well, Dr. Chris, is a comment. The, the PMI, as you see there at 2018, was revised purposely because of certain challenges we're finding that are coming up in marriages more and more. It was revised to be precise uh, and even focus on some of this. Every priest or deacon is different in how they approach this. I would always do the BMI in the third meeting 
which was the right meeting right before the writing rehearsal, you know, right before we can kind of finish up the process. And part of that is the questions of personal nature. So you want to have some sort of a relationship with the couple when you ask these questions. And they promise at the beginning to answer them truthfully. These questions are really important that we are asking them with a relationship with the couple we're working with. So they're honest with us and they don't view it as being kind of a weird or awkward situation, but rather being able to have had them had gone through Kena, gone through my own teaching with them about marriage and family and NFP and all those good and, and solid Catholic concepts. So that when the questions are asked, a basis is there to enable them to be able to be honest and truthful with you. And it's not an awkward or weird thing for us to ask it or them to answer it. So that's a little tool you've got. Um, another tool, um, and this is something that is a part of the Archdiocesan Marriage Prep Program, if they, if they take that program, um, and it gives tangible feedback. So, you know, when they come to uh, a pre-cana, and there's 150 people there, and, you know, they're listening to the testimonies, and they're listening to us, some catechesis, and they're watching videos, it's everybody else talking, and they might be sharing, but Prepare, Enrich, and Catholic Couple Checkup, are, um, they're two relationship inventories. Um, they're in the same family. So Prepare, Enrich is a, requires a facilitator. And right now we only train clergy to be facilitators, so priests and deacons. And what this inventory can do is it can prepare an engaged couple, or it can enrich an already married couple. Um, sometimes for uh, Valentine's Day, which is uh, World Marriage Day, we would offer free Catholic couple checkup. Catholic couple checkup is the same inventory that the couple does on their own. And it's, a, it's an online inventory that they both answer questions. Um, and then the system puts it together and gives them a readout that says, here's your strengths, here's your growth areas, and it's tangible. They see we answered these individually, and now this is what the psychology and the psychologists who built this are telling us about our relationship so that we can grow. And um, we actually started these back in 2018, and this went through Presbyterial Council to get the approval that we can add it. Um, not a lot of priests and deacons use this, but it's such a great tool because it gives you good feedback to learn this couple, especially if they're not real familiar with you, um, but, but you do have to go through training. Um, some couples or some priests allow the couple to, to do the one that doesn't need a facilitator, um, you know, so that they don't have to share the results. Father Welch has also said that when the couple takes this, it generates, um, I think it's a 15 to 20 page report that actually could be added to the wedding file. You could ask a couple to bring you a copy or email you the PDF copy, and you could actually include it in their file. It, Father Welch had said it could be in there should, should God forbid, an, uh, a divorce and annulment uh, take place. But here's, so on this inventory where the couple fills out individually these uh, questions, it generates report a 15-page report. This would be one page of the report. So what it does is it checks them on about nine different categories, including 
affectionate sexual expectations. There's one on finance. There's one on leisure. There's one on spirituality. There's one on communications. There's one on family. So this one I thought was particularly relevant to this topic. There's one that they take about affection and sexual expectations. It measures their satisfaction with the level of affection. And it also talks to them about their comfort in discussing sexual issues and expectations. So here you can see they, you know, James and Mary both went to their computers. It took, took, so, took them about 45 minutes to each answer the questions about their relationship. And it comes back with each of their satisfaction levels. So James is a little bit more satisfied with their, um, their sexual expectations and affection than Mary is. So James is somewhat satisfied. But there are some issues that need to be discussed. Mary is less satisfied. And then what happens is there is a couple agreement chart. And it kind of, you see, it actually ends up being what the lowest part is from up here, from the two of them. So their couple agreement is, is this a growth area for them? It, it's a better way of saying it's a weakness. Is it a strength or is it a possible strength? So in this case, this is a weakness for this couple and some discussion items uh, that they may want to discuss are these. Now, if they're using Catholic Couple Checkup, they have to do this on their own. But if you happen to be facilitating this and you're using this tool, um, the tool gives you a guide that helps you foster questions to get to asking them about this. Now, when the couple does this entire inventory if you're facilitating it because you've, you've chosen that, what you normally start with is those areas where they're in agreement and where they have strengths. So they start feeling pretty good about their relationship. And then you move on to talking about some of the growth areas and you send them home with exercise saying, I want you, before you come to my next meeting, you know, talk about, you know, I want you to do some exploring about natural family planning. Now here they have, you know, some of the things that we have, they're still using the natural family planning, but uh, it's a tool you can use. And if they come through our program, they're either doing Prepare and Enrich where you're going to get the report or they're going to take Catholic Couple Checkup in which you can tell them when you finish, I'd like to see your report. Bring it in with me. And there's nothing like really difficult about this. You just look at the charts and it helps you realize it gets them talking about things they would not have talked about before. Okay. Um, you know, in our pre-Cana day, um, I'm trying to think if deacons come to it. I, I will share that we've, we've gotten approval to develop a convalidation program. And with our pre-cana, um, you know, we've been blessed to be able to have a priest at each one who does a little bit of a talk, blesses the couple and their rings through the uh, order of blessing. And here's confessions for those who would like to. Uh, with our convalidation, Father uh, Ernest had suggested we not do confession because um, you know, can you absolve them when they're probably going to still be engaging in, in the sexual act? So he says, let's not open up a can of worms. We should have them go to confession a week or two or three before they're convalidated. But that actually opens us up to be able to have deacons at the convalidation <laughs> So kind of good for us, you know, <laughs> more, more uh, clergy out there to have. But anyway, in our pre-cana day, we, we put a little bit more prayer in it. We have a facilitator couple and a host couple. Um, sometimes deacons and their wives are great couples uh, to do this. We have the sh seven short videos with experts and witness couples. We do have a consistent script and PowerPoint slides because it would be very easy for the, 
facilitator coupled, not to bring up the, the natural family planning and some of those tough, tough issues. So we build it in, worst cases, they're saying it, and then we know that it's covered. The couples can always see the PowerPoint slides if they want. Most of them don't want to, but at least, you know, they've heard it, at least they, they've heard it. Uh, they've heard it, I'm sure, from the clergy, so at least they're getting some of it. They get workbooks and, in, and exercises with reference um, information. And then, of course, it's been, it's been a blessing to have the priest there in our, in our in-person preteens. So finally, as we wind down here, um, you know, if you go to our website, the places that you might want to look relative to this issue is the Fertility Awareness NFP section, or that's where you can direct couples to go to. Um, you can go to the clergy portal and see our Prekina slides, uh, the videos, the workbooks, and then from a Spanish perspective, uh, this is where the NFP would be. Finally, we, we are blessed in our office um, to have Vinny. Okay, he's a young, um, a young father of three, he has triplets, and they were all conceived naturally using the Creighton method. Uh, he was actually hired, um, he, he applied, he was the first person I hired. He uh, applied to be the bereavement coordinator, but we had uh, a woman who was a nurse who, you know, NFP was not fun to be in because, there, you know, nobody was buying into it. He loved NFP. And I said, let's just kind of move you into NFP. Well, then once he had the triplets, we thought we'd better move him out of there because people might get scared if you practice NFP and immediately had triplets. Uh, but he's still with us, and he helps field uh, NFP questions. He's a he's a great ambassador for the church. Father Chris, do you know him? I don't know if you know Vinny. I know Vinny through the college uh, sort of apostolate. He's involved in as well. But uh, what a tremendous guy, a great dad, a great husband, and um, a really, really wonderful example of um, Catholic young adults who has lived in the church, is teaching joyfully, and a beautiful young family. So Vinny is a blessing for the diocese to have him, definitely. And very pastoral. I mean, if somebody calls with the tough questions, you know, we talk about him, and he, he can always give them a good pastoral but correct answer. And then Cassie, who also Father Chris knows, uh, she is on retainer with us. Um, we met her through FEM. She's a FEM educator. Uh, she was the witness couple at our Humana Vitae um, 50th anniversary conference. And I am always very uh, proud to send couples her way because she listens to them and think the works to say what works for you. And she stands by them. They can call her anytime, um, as can you. Okay. So two very young, uh, beautiful people. Sometimes people want to talk to a man, sometimes a woman. So, so they've got both of them. And actually, you can send people directly to them if you'd like. Okay since you've got this information uh, just a couple resources but again you know looking at your audience um you know how much are they reading books anymore versus going online but this is these are two good books uh Con contraception and catholicism actually when i was in person there uh last year I, I brought everybody a copy of this but they're not very expensive this is probably one if you if you think that you're going to be in this area, you're going to be working with couples, you might want to get a copy, but it is only paperback. Um, and then Men, Women, and the Mystery of Love, Dr. Edward Street, who's actually talking with the young adult um, uh, at one of the young adult events uh, this month. Um, this also comes as an e-book, but um, you know, he, he talks beautifully about marriage. 
and of course within that then he talks about theology of the body and which in, in, includes the whole natural family planning or fertility awareness piece so i mean my i guess my last words before you know opening it up to questions or saying good night is you know can you can we continue to realign our thinking to engage those audiences right where they are and foster the climate that promotes this uh, and thinking to enable a new means of evangelization, even if it moves us a little bit out of our comfort levels. Integrate the technology when it's beneficial and thinking in tracks to digital for millennials and iGeners and analog meaning phone or paper for the baby boomers and maybe maybe some of the um, uh, Gen Xers. If you have in-person events, just make them engaging, make them count. And then in all things, I guess we pray and we do trust in God that he's you know, where, we, where, where we need to be. One of the things that we kind of focus on is, you know, we're called to be missionaries and to have a missionary role, but we also have to be in maintenance mode. So we're trying to move past the planning and building, which, you know, is kind of exciting but then we have to implement and operate and keep it going. So that's a little bit more aware, at least for our offices, is to continue doing that. And I would say at that point, that's all I have. And I would, you know, invite you if you'd like to ask any questions. If you've had enough of me. <laughs> okay. I know, I know it was a lot. And I appreciate the time being able to share it all with you. Having the slides also for us to kind of have for our own resources is great as well, because we can go back and look at these things and kind of see the little posts we made on them and just the information that's there. So it's really helpful, definitely. Father Chris, I would tell you also, if you would like any of these as the PowerPoints so that you can reuse them, I'm happy to share them with you. Great. Thank you, Doctor. Yeah. Okay. I just have to get them to you either through Dropbox or Flash Drive or, you know, because it would be, able, it'd be helpful to kind of tailor some of this, even in marriage prep ourselves in the parishes. Gentlemen, you're going to find, you've already found, that marriage prep in a lot of parishes is pretty woeful. And a lot of couples are going out to get married with not a great understanding of the sacrament. And both on my part and on your part, again, I mention this all, all the time to you guys, you know, as our numbers go down, we're going to be relying more and more on, on you to be the ones who are going to be doing these marriage prep courses and as married men in the case of many of you it adds a dimension to it that i can't bring to it so in some sense having a having a married man who's a member of the clergy giving these talks is going to be helpful but we have to go have to approach it with not only our life experience but also the proper understanding of these things and when questions about these topics do come up we cannot shy away from it I think oftentimes we are almost embarrassed of what the church teaches regarding sexual ethics. And that the way that has given us a tremendous two-week presentation to deal with both the theology as well as the science of this and the, the, the technology that is there as well right now. So a lot of good opportunities here to be able to really um, learn from this and use it in ministry. Um, so yeah, just it just this is great. Thanks, Dr. for all your all your time and, and we appreciate it so much so thank you any questions gentlemen have a good rest of your um semester and best wishes as you go on this journey of or of the academic ordination hopefully hopefully next year would that be next year 
stood by me in my time of trial. Hallelujah. I trusted even when I said I'm sorely afflicted. And when I said in my alarm, no man can be trusted. How can I repay the Lord for his goodness to me? A cup of salvation I will raise and I will call on the Lord's name. My vows to the Lord I will fulfill before all his people. O oh, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his faithful. Your servant, Lord, your servant am I. You have loosened my bonds, and, I, and a thanksgiving sacrifice I make. I will call on the Lord's name. My vows to the Lord I will fulfill before all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O oh, Jerusalem to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You are the men who have stood by me in my time of trial. I have lived among you as one who ministers to others. Hallelujah. When the Lord has delivered Zion from bondage, it seemed like a dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter, and on our lips there was one. The heathens themselves said, what marvels the Lord worked for them, what marvels the Lord worked for us, indeed we were glad. Deliver us, O Lord, from our bondage, as streams in dry land. Those who are sowing in tears will sing when they reap. <laughs> 
They go out, they go out, full of tears, carrying the seed for sowing. They come back, they come back, full of song, carrying their sleeves. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I have lived among you as one who ministers to others. I no longer call you servants, but my friends. For I have shared with you everything I heard from my Father, Alleluia. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who bestowed on us, Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavens. God chose us in him before the world began to be holy and blameless in his sight. Predestined us to be his adopted sons through Jesus Christ. Such was his will and pleasure that all might praise the glorious favor he has bestowed on us in his beloved. In him and through his blood we have been redeemed. Sins forgiven, so immeasurably generous is God's favor to us. God has given us the wisdom to understand fully the mystery. Plan was pleased to create in Christ a plan to be carried out in Christ in the fullness of time to bring things things into one in Him in the heavens and on the earth. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I no longer call you servants, but my friends. For I have shared with, with you everything I heard from my father. That's you, Deacon George, the reading. Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in roles of service for the faithful to build up the body of Christ till we become one in faith and in the knowledge of God's Son and form that perfect man who is Christ come to full stature. Tell all the nations how glorious God is. Tell all the nations how glorious God is. Make known his wonders to every people how glorious God is. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. At Holy Communion time. the nations how glorious God is. When all things are made new and the Son of Man is enthroned in majesty, you will sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My Spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. Generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him. In every generation, he has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones and has lifted up the lowly. 
has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy. The promise to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. When all things are made new, and the Son of Man is enthroned in majesty, you will sit in judgment over the twelve tribes of Israel. My brothers, we built on the foundation of the apostle. Let us pray to our almighty father for his holy people and say, be mindful of your church, O Lord. Father, you wanted your son to be seen first by the apostle after the redemptions from the dead. We ask you to make his witness to be the farthest corner of the world. You send your son to preach the good news to the poor. Help us to preach his gospel to every creature. To you send your son to sow the seed of unseen tending life. Grant your grant that we who work at soul sowing the seed may share the joy of the harvest. You send your son to reconcile all men to you through his blood. Help us all to work towards achieving his reconciliation. Brothers, now let us ask the Lord our own petition Lord, open the hearts and minds of your people to bring about an end to abortion and the culture of death, the conversion of sinners, and the reparation of sin. We pray to the Lord. Be mindful of the church, O Lord. For peace in this country tonight, especially in Philadelphia, we pray to the Lord. Be mindful of your church. Be mindful of your church, O Lord. Who of the sect, we pray to the Lord. Be mindful of your church, O Lord. The eight men who will be ordained this Saturday to the diaconate, be mindful of your church, church O Lord. Your son sits at your right hand in heaven let the dead enter your kingdom of joy now as brothers that we are let us pray the word that the lord has taught us our father who art in heaven hallowed be the name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, 
will deliver us from evil. Amen. Father, Father you revealed yourself to us through the preaching of your apostles Simon and Jude. By their prayers, give your church continued growth and increase the number of those who believe in you. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. The Lord be with you. With your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God. A five minute bathroom break and we'll resume at seven. Sure. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So our topic for this evening is what seems to be kind of obvious, but standing and sitting. I don't know that we fully understand, and hopefully these notes helped you a bit with understanding the importance of the gesture that the standing isn't just a default setting. In the, if you ever get a chance to go on YouTube and Google some kind of Russian Orthodox thing from one of their cathedrals in Moscow, you will have the opportunity to see that there are no chairs at all, that they stand from the beginning to the end. And there may be on the side walls benches that may be for the elderly who can't make it uh, to sit down. But pretty basically what's being emphasized is that the, the, just the preeminent gesture of prayer for a Christian is standing and standing because it represents the resurrection. Make sense? Our Irish culture in this country has kind of gotten across the impression to many, many of us, and especially our people, that somehow kneeling, kneeling gets you a double coupon as opposed to standing, okay? And that's one that we want to at least by our behavior, be emphasizing that this is a gesture in its own right, that standing, standing is represents the resurrection. And it's not a thing of that I'm only praying when I am kneeling down. Does this make sense to people? Okay. Um, When I was John Tremblay with the Franciscans, okay, Um, the Franciscan ritual, again, this is pre-Vatican II, 
was that we stood for the entire Eucharistic prayer with the exception of the institution narrative, except during Lent. In Lent, we would kneel for the entire Eucharistic prayer, as is the usual custom in our parish churches nowadays. At Holy Communion times, certainly the, the emphasis the on main aisle, the Easter this, season was on standing for prayer. Okay, everybody clear with that? Okay. Now I wanna. We have in our community, in other words, that I think I put a note in here somewhere, that our bishops have determined that given the size of our parishes, especially in a Sunday liturgy, that the requested posture of receiving Holy Communion is standing. Agreed? That one comes up, one bows, okay, in reverence, and then one hand over the other, making the throne, the sign of the cross, okay, and receiving Holy Communion. We have as a policy, well, I would like to, there are those who, and I'm probably in all of your parishes, maybe by a show of hands, that you've got some people who will come up and drop to their knees to receive Holy Communion. How many? Okay, that's, that's everybody. Okay. Now, why do they do that? tradition well but, but not really paul because the tradition admittedly kneeling but that was when we had the altar rail and they knelt so that what we really have now is a a holy communion procession of which they're part of but it's an example i think in some of their minds okay that standing isn't holy enough right? i would agree. i would agree okay and that's that's the part that i am trying to okay, not by hollering at anybody okay but if it came up in conversation okay in other words that to come up in words if our bishops have asked us to do this and i am on my own going to do that okay i don't really see that as the kind of devotion, the obedience that Christ okay, exemplified. Am I making sense on that? Okay. That makes sense. I um, Go ahead, Paul. A couple of things on that. First of all, when I go to, uh, and we're out of the Archdiocese of New York, so now we're not talking about our, our bishops here, but certainly uh, United States bishops. Uh, the churches I attend in Massachusetts it's a 50-50 split, and in some of them, they the priests suggest you kneel. That, as a matter of fact, I have been in, in masses where the priest has said, "It is preferred you kneel unless you you can't." Those things have been said, but uh, I realize that's probably the outlier. But here uh, in New York, where you do see a good number of them, and it seems like more and more are kneeling when they approach for communion, uh, the priests, for the most part, I, at least all the priests I've seen and, and deacons will, will uh, give them Holy Communion, 
kneeling. They won't say anything. Although I was at, in, at a funeral where a young man knelt to receive and the priest told him to get up and he would not give him communion on his knees. Okay. So what I'm, may I, may I respond? Okay. And again, this is me looking at the texts because I think it is, I think it's important. It's, it's not a question merely of taste, although that's going to come into it. Okay. But where there is a written policy, certainly priests and certainly deacons should be going with the stated policy. Am I making sense, please? Okay. Um, and that's why, you know, when somebody is doing something, my, my head, a former pastor used to say, people who, and I'm paraphrasing now to throw my line in, people who don't say the black and do the red are paving the way for Vatican III. Okay. because it's going to require something to get cleaned up again okay. because devotions have this a nasty habit of trying to get their way into the liturgy okay. the liturgy is our prayer it's never my prayer okay so the points that I would want to make is I, I, I am I'm uncomfortable with the priest who is encouraging people to kneel, okay? And I am also unhappy with the priest because there's a policy on this that even though we're asking people to stand because it is the communion procession of which they are a part, yes, there's a sign of reverence, but if someone on their own kneels down, they are not to be refused Holy Communion. Am I making sense on that, please, everyone? Okay, so the guy who says, I'm not giving you communion unless you stand up, he is as wrong as the priests who are telling them to go against the stated positions. Sure. Clear? Yeah. And thanks be to the good God, I'm not a deacon in that parish, that I don't have to very subtly and diplomatically try to point out, am I misunderstanding something here, Father, in what this says here? Right? Okay. Are you with me on that? But you bring up very valid points. But I do want to emphasize to everybody, number one, this is what it is, and it's not second best. Number two, that anybody who doesn't go with the stated policy is not to be refused communion. Okay, clear? That's what you as a Eucharistic minister or God willing the days comes in where that you're a deacon. Any deacon, follow up on that? Yes, Paul. Follow up question. So God willing, if we ever are deacons, um, would it not be the case then that we are not the ones to to make the correction? Certainly not at the, at, at the foot of the altar, I understand that. But even in a private conversation with parishioners, is it not our place to say anything or is this just the place of the pastor to say we're supposed to be standing or do we remain silent or should we say anything or i don't know. I, I i wouldn't say anything unless it came up in conversation okay um if half of the parish is doing it okay 
I would I would recommend to the pastor that maybe uh, either a bulletin insert or a an announcement or even as part of a homily an explanation of that we Christians are neither animals okay who only worship by their being or not angels who worship only in spirit but we are corporeal persons and so we worship with mind and heart but we also worship with our bodies and it is a communal experience and therefore in some ways i would say to someone if i was really comfortable why do you want to stand out okay in other words are you trying to show that you are holier than other people okay are you with me on that i understand that no no i would never say such a thing because a person's heart he might feel that you know with with a with a sense of humility he wishes to drop to his knees and but but i i think my point why not go to the floor well sure exactly okay where do you stop yeah well exactly but my point being that it's we we would never make the correction we that would always be left to the pastor right 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 okay unless he asked you to you know to give you know come up with some kind of a okay Sure. No, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I think we're on the same page. Thank you. Wouldn't, um, isn't kneeling though an acceptable posture? I thought standing and kneeling were both acceptable. Like, like being prostrate would not be an acceptable posture. Okay. It's a communion procession. Okay. Right. Although I'm not disagreeing with you, but if someone did kneel down, we're, we're not to refuse them. Okay. Okay. Because but that's it. Part here in this box. No. Okay. Bishops of the United States have chosen standing as the posture to be observed for the reception of communion. And that's taken from. Taken from this one that we had earlier in the course. Okay. So it doesn't say it in the. Again, this is you're not going to find it in the germ, because the germ is the Universal Church. Okay, but it is here because that's what the bishops of the United States. Okay. Which is a. Okay. With me on that. And go back to that primary. If everybody, if everybody ahead of you is kneeling down, and you are in Massachusetts, okay. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Okay, we've established that principle. But I strongly, strongly suggest that when you are on the altar, I don't care what your devotional background is. That it's your job as whether uh, you whether as a acolyte or as a deacon, you're going to follow policy. Okay, so that a deacon should not be, and when the celebrant turns to give you communion and you're dropping to your knees, you are saying to the congregation, "Okay, this is better." Okay, and your job is to be obedient. 
I don't think a deacon I've ever witnessed, personally, I've never witnessed a deacon uh, receive on his knees. Not that I can recall. Yeah, I, 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 I would say it's a rarity, but I have seen it. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, the, if we all know that there are stupid bishops and stupid priests, and there are stupid deacons as well, okay? Um, okay. I told you my famous one about the, the deacon who had a funeral mass, and he was a guest, okay? So he goes to the pulpit, and he begins the, the gospel reading, and he says, the Lord be with you. And the people respond, and with your spirit. And he looks up at them and says, thank you. Okay. <laughs> the other deacon and I, okay, we just looked at each other and rolled our eyes. Eh? Yep. Uh, an expression of goodwill in our culture given to you, like happy birthday, you're going to say thank you. Okay. Hope you're feeling well, we're going to say thank you. Okay. But we don't do that on the altar. Okay say the black do the red don't add don't subtract everybody with me okay but it's it's good that you bring up all of those now john did we get all of your your question in okay all right so my emphasis here is that standing is its own gesture it's not a waiting to perform a gesture. I would also recommend that there are times that you're going to be standing for a very long time. Okay. Uh, I, I think that most of your wives know that on Palm Sunday and Good Friday, those are not the days to wear high heels to church. Agreed? Okay. Robert, you look a little confused there. I'm not. The long gospel readings. It's, it's very long. Right? Same thing, the vigil. And the vigil. Right? You don't want to wear high, you know. <laughs> not that any of us are wearing high heels. Peter, did you want to add something? Yeah, just um, normally when somebody goes to mass, there's always elderly people when we're supposed to be kneeling they don't kneel they sit down should they be standing uh, we're talking about the elderly yes for the uh, as a matter of fact when uh, i have checked with my pastor okay um if i see that at this particular congregation that there is a a huge number of elderly people Okay. I remind them that okay, this is going to be a very long gospel, and if necessary, please feel very free to sit down, okay? that you can concentrate on the proclamation of the gospel rather than get okay, you worried about collapsing. Okay? So sometimes... sometimes you know, people don't kneel. When they're supposed to kneel i'm not talking about when they can't stand very long i'm talking about the normal time you're supposed to kneel they sit down okay Should that could be something sometimes because some people have problems with their knees right. um would it be okay if they stand then 
We're standing has okay. I, I think that what I would want to encourage is at least people looking alike. Whereas if you've got if you have everybody kneeling and you've got four different people standing that they stand out stand out like a sore thumb and that then is a distraction to where the attention of the congregation ought to be going so i think i would prefer to have them sit rather than stand and that's the reason why and then there's method where certain uh, parishes where you kneel and there's some parishes where everybody's standing during the Eucharist, you know, when the, when the priest is uh, performing. Okay. Again, people should be following the rubrics so that there are those, there are those priests who say to people, stand up for the entire Eucharistic prayer. Well, that's not the policy. Okay. That's like the people who okay, that Paul was making reference to are telling them that they they're to kneel. Okay? People shouldn't be engaged in cultural wars during the liturgy. Okay? It is designed to be the sacrament of unity, and if everybody does what is written, okay, that that works out best of all. Okay. Now, is that just me, or did, I mean, I hope it makes sense to you all, right? Okay. Liturgy is designed to be make people come together, right? And it is that body of Christ come to full stature that we read in this evening's uh, reading. Okay. Next item. Glasses, please. All right, but in any case, have I established right, as a deacon at the altar, you're not going to kneel for Holy Communion. Agreed? Okay. And we talked about this earlier, so I'm going to repeat it, that if there are two deacons on the altar, okay, that you're going to check with the senior deacon and find out whether or not they are capable of kneeling for the Eucharistic prayer. That it's better that both of them are doing the same rather than one that says, you know, okay, I'm not ready for the grave and I'm in better athletic shape than he is, right? That would be wrong. Okay. Now, I think on the bottom of that page, I draw your attention to that when we're talking about standing, it is not, it's not that rigidity of the Marine Corps on parade. Okay. You want your feet kind of comfortably a little bit apart, one foot in front of the other. Okay, so it's not it's not at attention, nor is it even the rigidity of parade rest. Okay, but it is a standing up straight. It's certainly not a slouch. Okay, it's not the teenage posture. Okay, and all of you with children know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Down at the bottom here, just as an interesting po little point. There is this word called a misericord. Do you see that little picture? Okay. 
So if I was saying that the, the posture of prayer for the early Christians okay, was primarily standing, okay, that the office used to be recited entirely standing. And that was when something like matins could go on for three nocturnes of three psalms and a reading each. So it could go on for a good half hour and you would be standing for the entire thing. Okay. So what developed, okay, given the, the difficulty of age, okay, was that they would have these things that Okay, misericord is the English word that's used for like a, a little platform which you could still be standing but kind of rest your rear end upon. Okay, so it wasn't sitting down, okay, but for a very long office, you could have a little bit of mercy, okay, for your feet. Okay, since they were doing that, then over the course of time developed in different religious orders i'm pretty sure that the carthusians still say the entire office standing um i know the dominicans used to pre-vatican II. i don't know what they do now but the dominicans would all would stand for the glory be to the father and then the next psalm would be intoned, and one side would sit, one side would remain standing. Then when time for the Gloria, they'd stand up, okay? Then this side would sit for the next psalm. So they kind of alternated. In a Franciscan house, okay, once the, it was intoned, everybody sat kind of like what you're used to doing at Dunwoody. Everybody making sense on that? So different things developed over the course of time. But that's just an interesting little sideline. Okay? Um, it, it's also why you can see like the Dunwoody pews, okay, I should say the Dunwoody choir stalls, okay, that they lift okay, because in words to accommodate in words that it was the office recited standing. Okay. Uh, another point that I'm making here is that I, I, I wrote myself a little bit of a note um, in terms of standing. We're used to when we are, when we hear the phrase, the gospel of the Lord, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and then the congregation sits down. Agreed? Okay. And it's fairly standard in our parishes. An exception, and you will have noticed this probably at Dunwoody, at any mass that was celebrated with a bishop, that the deacon, if there is a bishop, not a, a priest, if it's a bishop who is presiding, that the gospel of the Lord, praise to Lord Jesus Christ, the deacon does not kiss the book, as he would do ordinarily. Instead, he carries the book of the Gospels over to the bishop, and it is the bishop who then kisses the book. And in theory, at least, 
everybody in the congregation is supposed to remain standing until he has kissed the book. Am I being clear on that? So it's a thing that our people don't know, but you'll see that the seminarians and the, you know, when you're at masses with Dunwoody, at least most of the clergy know that they don't sit down immediately after the gospel if there is a bishop presiding. The second part that is related to that is the bishop has an option after he has kissed the book of the gospels, he may close the book and he may choose to give a blessing with the book of the gospels. And it would be after that blessing that people would sit down for the homily. Okay. Questions? Everybody understands that as an exception? Okay. Turning the page over, side two. church the only one who would have sat was the bishop which is why he had a chair i think later on if you check and see uh, pictures of saint john lateran the cathedral parish of rome that the pope's throne is in the apse in the back of the church and there are stone benches and the, the concelebrants, usually the cardinals concelebrating with the Pope, would sit on those benches. Originally, uh, originally he and maybe the clergy would be the only ones who were sitting, and that's that whole notion of the chair that we've taken over into secular academic culture, the chair as the presider, and also that when we use that dogmatic term, ex cathedra, from the church, from the chair. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I'm picking my words carefully. Uh, any pope who would be uh, offering an opinion during a television interview, okay what he would say would not ever be considered an infallible teaching because he has not picked the methodology of doing a teaching in order to be considered by an infallible teaching. To be infallible, it has to be on a matter of faith or morals. He must intend to bind the entire church and so it's only when he is speaking ex cathedra, okay? Those are dogmatic definitions, okay? I, I think I, I used this example last week. If the Pope were telling you that he thought that the Rome soccer club was going to beat Milan's this coming Sunday, okay? To bet against the Pope or to, to bet with the Pope would not be a sure thing that you're going to make money, okay? Because he can be wrong on predicting the soccer store. 
score. That's got nothing to do. Okay, everybody clear on that one? Okay, but so the chair then, okay, the chair represents something, okay, because it was one of those unique items in the church that there was one altar, one chair, okay, there really wasn't an ambo, okay, the, the ambo in the church of St. Clement in Rome, for those of you who have been there, there's kind of a, like a little staircase up and there was a place for the choir between them and the epistle was chanted from one ambo and the gospel was chanted from another ambo but in a place like St. Peter's St. Peter's did not have a pulpit Recall, those of you who are older, that in a solemn high mass, the gospel wasn't proclaimed from the pulpit. In the solemn high mass, it was the subdeacon who was holding the gospel book. Okay? The subdeacon was the holder of the book, and the deacon chanted it from the open gospel book. Later on, you would see in Rome for things like uh, intercessions, that they had really a portable, a foldable kind of thing that was used. And they only got what I'm going to call a, a movable pulpit that Benedict XVI commissioned one that they use now occasionally in St. Peter's. So it's with the Protestant Reformation that you really begin to see the emphasis on the proclamation of the word and that there are Protestant churches where the altar is not in the center. It is the pulpit that is in the center and it's raised high. Okay. And recall that please. And uh, that the Protestant reformation is made uh, more rapid because of the invention of the printing press, which enabled those thoughts of the reformers to have a wide audience in a way that was cheap, okay, as well as widespread. Where I'm going with this is, can you almost look down and see pews as lines of text? Pews, in a sense, were putting the people in a, a neat and orderly fashion. Okay. And or how many have any of you have been up to Old North Church in in Boston? Paul, if you got okay, so there the 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 pews were almost like little, little cubicles, and because the pulpit was raised up on high you almost had a sense of privacy inside your cubicle, okay? But it also gave you, because the church wasn't heated, that you could bring your own charcoal brazier and keep your little room warm, okay? okay? But still be able to hear the sermon, okay? So I guess what I'm trying to get across is really a twofold thing here, okay? It is... Probably it's mostly at ordinations where you are going to see the archbishop 
preach from the chair, okay? Which is, you know, the whole notion of the cathedral taking its name from that reality. Um, that pews come in later. And even in St. Peter's today, where and when there is a big pontifical mass, you know that they've got chairs put out, but those are all stackable chairs. Okay? There are no pews that are screwed down into the floor okay? in any of the Roman basilicas. Is that making sense to people? Okay. All right. Questions? Even today, for those of you who've had an opportunity to watch uh, the daily mass from St. Patrick's Cathedral, that usually on a weekday, the eminence doesn't go to the pulpit to preach. He is standing, he's not sitting at the chair, but he's standing right in front of the chair okay, for his weekday homilies. And even, I, Pretty often, my experience with Cardinal Dolan is that he more often than not preaches from the sanctuary steps rather than going up to the up to the uh, pulpit. Next item. So speaking of chairs, okay, I, the how of it. So you don't want to be a person who is slouching okay, when everybody is watching you. So, okay. You do best if, okay, if your hands are on your knees or at least on your thighs, okay, which is almost designed to help you from okay, fidgeting too much or picking your nose or ears, okay, or it's stay still. Okay, because you don't want to be a distraction. This came up. You see the bottom bottom box on page two. This happened to me my, uh, the first year I worked with Deacon Frank. Working is the wrong word. Uh, we went up together for the ordination retreat to Mount Savior. And because at that time, Frank was working in the uh, finance portion of the diocese, he had to go back a day early. And it also happened that the priest who, the Father Prior of the community, he had a medical exam or his his mother had a, a medical procedure in Buffalo so the prior priest who would have said mass okay, he was also gone and so the brothers of the community asked me to provide preside over a service of the word with the distribution of holy communion okay. it's the kind of thing that i do now every friday for the hebrew home and the point that I'm making is, is that when a deacon is presiding at one of these non-mass things, he doesn't sit in the celebrant's chair, okay? In other words, he sits in a chair next to that, 
obviously with pandemic now in words people are sitting far apart from one another but i just wanted to since we're talking about sitting when the day comes and you are presiding at a service of the word okay in a church okay you don't sit in the center chair and when i do this at the hebrew home in the pre pandemic days i would even put a chair if you will on a little bit of a platform to represent the celebrant and i would sit in the chair next to it okay to remind the people that it would be better if we had a priest presiding does that make sense to people okay so what we're not going to do with talking heads is to okay have everybody practice standing up and sitting down um but i will see you all on fri on on saturday i should say saturday morning i don't know if i'll see you all i'm not sure that all of you are coming maybe it's just the ones who have a role how many are coming saturday okay so that's john and danny and george okay and doug the rest of you guys are also you right i took the point that i'm making is a okay no hands on the thighs stay still um Anthony, do you have a question you you your box slided up no no i'm there too okay you're there too okay yeah i do okay your skeleton doesn't seem to have an opportunity to raise its hand no i tried to make sure that it doesn't move i i can't trust him that's uh-huh. right <laughs> um but i think that covers anything everything that we wanted to do today could i huh? Is there anything that anybody wants to ask or add? Go ahead, Paul. Me again and I apologize. <laughs> Paul, never apologize for being a good student. Okay. It, it, this is just from my own edification because I've I've been interested in this. There always comes a point in the mass to me where it seems that things get a little bit I don't want to use the word sloppy because that's a disrespectful word to use in this context. Yeah. But when when we were younger and I'm not talking Vatican, you know, pre-Vatican II, I'm talking about maybe I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, right after the lavabo, the priest would pray, you know, pray brethren that our sacrifice be acceptable and we would respond may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then at the conclusion of our response, the church would rise. Somewhere that changed over the past 25 30 years. I don't ever remember being told this is going to change. It changed. So now sometimes the priest will go like this with his hands as he says pray brethren and the congregation will rise. Other times at the end of that when the congregation starts the response may the lord accept they will rise. I'm not sure what we're supposed to really be doing. uh i would have to go look for it to find the exact thing i'm pretty sure that there was a change in the rubrics between second and third edition of the roman missal okay so that the first one did what you said we pray brethren and then the response of the people and that in a sense okay uh then he's now going to do the prayer over the gift okay which came next and for that prayer the people stood okay 
and then we went right into the into the uh, Eucharistic prayer, and they remained standing. But there, so there was sitting, okay, and to mark the change, we would then stand. But there was a thing that said, now, if in fact the people are going to pray, okay, remember all, all most of the prayers in the offertory are better. It's not offertory anymore, it's preparation of gifts, okay? That since the people had a, an assigned prayer to say, that they, for they should stand to be able to give that response. So your answer is, was there a change? Yes, the change came from Rome and not from priests having fights with one another. Okay, And it was, I think, designed, as we had in the beginning of this class, if you're going to pray, then the ordinary way is to pray standing. Okay? Uh, to, to show that as the... As it was in the earlier church, I can't tell you exactly which century, but remember the Good Friday preserves a lot of the ancient practices. Um, and so the celebrant would say, let us, um, celebrant would say, let us pray. Okay. The deacon then would give the instruction, let us kneel. Okay, and that kneeling was for private prayer. Okay, and then the instruction, the the deacon would give the instruction, let us stand, and the celebrant would now collect the private prayers of the community into the collect, and we had the, that series of ten for those who in fact celebrated it last year we had 11 because we had a special prayer for the pandemic okay but again and where's it in other words i with most of us i guess we did not celebrate any of the easter any of the holy week ceremonies okay are you with me on that on the uh, does that answer your question paul I, I guess so, except that I'm still not 100% certain as to precisely what point we're supposed to stand. I, I assume when he says, pray, brethren, that's what you're driving at, and then we stand. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So if, you, if you're looking for, if you're looking for clarity, okay, that would be the point. Unfortunately, the deacon is not helpful there because the deacon is already standing. Okay, so it would be if if you're looking to have your when we get them back because we don't have them now, your altar servers could be helpful in setting the example that you would want to instruct them as soon as he says pray, brethren, have them stand up, which will kind of give a visual cue to the congregation. Yeah. You want as many things as many things people don't like being told what to do but they like knowing what they should do and so if you can give them in very subtle ways okay, instruction without ramming it down their throats it's going to go down better does that make sense sir? Yeah. Um, thank you yes peter yeah, um 
But Eucharistic ministers in my parish, oh, they're not consistent when they go to the tabernacle. They are. They're not consistent about the uh, genuflecting. They, some genuflect before they open the tabernacle. Some don't genuflect until they close the tabernacle. Okay, Peter, I'm going, to, I'm going to punt on this one and tell you that it's pretty basically the practice in this archdiocese that Eucharistic ministers don't go to the tabernacle. <laughs> okay. You see, the priest dies, correct? Or the deacon or an installed acolyte. Well, we, we, we don't have any, we, all we have is one priest. Okay. In my parish. And he's supposed, he is supposed to go, okay? right. would be the ordinary way. He may on an occasion, maybe his gout is bothering him in his toes and he might say, I'm worried about falling flat on my face to go over to the tabernacle, okay? Then he might ask, but that would be an exception and that's not the rule. Okay, so... Okay, let's assume it's a deacon or acolyte. Okay. <laughs> they go to the tabernacle. My own, my impression is they open the tabernacle, and that's when they're supposed to genuflect. I would agree. And then when they close the tabernacle, they don't have to genuflect again, correct? Only once. But, well, right, right, because now the boss is out. And they right. take carry that they should not be yes so that the next time that they are genuflecting then they put it in when they put it back right now genuflect now close the door but now do, do i you don't you close the door after you take it out you don't leave the tabernacle open do you yeah right but you don't have to necessarily relock it right we close it because i got okay so that's the way i but we're not allowed to say anything, correct? We shouldn't. shouldn't but there's no, there's no speaking part there. No, no, I meant if it's being done wrong. Oh, you keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Tell, tell him to talk to Deacon George. He'll straighten him out. Okay. Thank you, Robert. Uh, oh, oh. Question. And again, Pete, just to again remind everyone that that what I've just told you. Okay, and what you already knew is the custom here. It's not written down anywhere because Rome didn't see us going to the tabernacle okay, for each and every mass, okay, as in fact we do. But, okay, and again, in terms of simplicity, so it is not open the door, we genuflect. Take the Blessed Sacrament, put it on the shelf, genuflect again. Close the door, genuflect again. Give me a break. All right? So I it's think, more... It is. You're not... Only a priest or acolyte or a deacon are supposed to go to the tabernacle. That is... Should be under current legislation. Yeah. Okay. okay. Remember, remember that in the universal church, the first, the first rules were that... Eucharistic ministers could help to purify the vessels. Okay, uh, Benedict was uncomfortable with that. Okay, and so it was a. In the United States, we had had an indult. Okay, so it, theoretically, it wasn't allowed by the Universal Church. 
the American bishops had an indult which permitted Eucharistic ministers to do that. It had been it had been renewed for another five years, okay? and then in Benedict's time it came up for another renewal, and he did not renew it. Okay, and they said, "Well, we need this," and he said, "No, you don't need this." Um, and so that's when we stopped uh, having Eucharistic ministers participate in the purifying of the vessels. Okay. If there is still precious blood left in their, their chalice, obviously they're going to consume that okay, before they put it down. Okay. But then do they just leave and go back to their places? Have I answered all your questions? Okay. No. Any others? This this is a little something. Somebody said something a little few minutes ago, and it, this struck me about paying attention. This past August, we had our confirmation, the second one, with Bishop, newly ordained Bishop Colachico. And everyone kept looking at the clock because it was supposed to start at 5. The Mass didn't start to 5.35 because the deacon showed up whose granddaughter was being confirmed. So he made the... Not only did he make the bishop wait, he went up there and instead of reading the gospel, he reads the second reading because the other confirmation teacher sitting next to me, she grabs my arm and said, was I supposed to turn the page? I was like, no, he's supposed to know that. So pay attention in front of, in front of the bishop. He made the bishop wait and he, he did, you know, cause right away, you know, a reading said, you know, the Lord will be with you. So pay attention. Okay. Uh, Thank you for letting me know that story. Uh, I never said anything to him either. No, uh, but but it, thank you for in other words that when there are that the job of deacons are to be servants. Right? If deacons are going to cause more troubles, okay. You know, if if the bishop is late because whether his car broke down or the previous confirmation, because sometimes they're going from one confirmation to another, okay? That's one ball game. But if, I, I don't know that I would have, okay, I may have waited five minutes, okay? But I wouldn't have waited for the deacon. Does that sound cruel? Yeah, I, I thought it was rude. Okay. Now, again, because we don't know what the reason was. Perhaps there was a person who had been okay, waylaid by robbers and was on the side of the road, okay? And like a good Levite, in order that he didn't pass by, okay? And so that was good for him not to be there on time. But in reality was they should have gone ahead without him. I'll remember that in case I'm ever late. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. There better be a, a there better better be a police report that justifies that. I know plenty of police officers, no problem. But, but every, does everybody understand what I'm talking though about about the? Okay. Our job is to make things easier, not to cause more problems. And you could see that if Bishop Colachico okay, doesn't think well of the that it's not just that deacon but it reflects on all deacons okay that's why it's so important okay 
Deacon, are we supposed to, on every Sunday, help celebrate the Mass on our, at our parish? Every Sunday, if we're deacons? Uh, I would ex I would expect that. Okay, again, my first uh, my experience was with my what I'm going to call my ordaining pastor, my vesting pastor. Right? So I said to him, "All right, so on on weekdays, okay, do you want me vesting or not?" Okay? And he said, "You're a deacon. You're at mass." You vest, okay? So at any mass that I am at in my parish, I'm vested, okay? But it may be I'm the only deacon in my parish, okay? In other parishes, there may be a schedule because there are several deacons, okay? And what about readings? Are you supposed to also read at every mass that you present at? As a deacon? Okay, the, the deacon, the, the, the rubrics say, as I read them, if there is a deacon, the deacon is the one to proclaim the gospel. Okay. Um, standard order, ordinary practice would be that the celebrant would give the homily. I go back to, again, using what the ceremonial of Bishop says, okay, that the, the mass of the bishop in his cathedral with his priests and deacons and people is the preeminent manifestation of the church. Okay? So I'm looking at what... At a bishop's mass... Does not the deacon do, proclaim the gospel? Okay. Do you notice that, okay, like everybody else, the bishop stands for the gospel? Okay. He doesn't wear a mitre. He is like every other Christian. He listens to God's word. What the rubrics have is that he holds, again, left hand, he holds the crozier in his left hand, okay? Because he's being reminded that he's listening because he has to guide the people. But he doesn't talk until he's heard God's word first. Does that make sense to you? Huh? Okay, and therefore, I th what, what therefore is true of the bishop then in a smaller way, okay, even for in a parish, if there is a deacon there. Am I making sense, please, on that? Again, we're, we're looking at the rubrics and we're saying it's not just uh, a plan of attack. It's not just a step-by-step. -step, but Each of these things are trying to convey a meaning and a message. Okay. And those are things that we need to think about, okay, in order to be one to be able to explain them. Okay, the deacon always gets blessed by the celebrant before he proclaims the gospel. Always by always by always gets the blessing. Although I, I did once, I, you know, uh, there is there's a difference in the 
remember a priest will ask for a kind of a blessing if there is no deacon okay? if there is no deacon the celebrant bows to the altar and says um, um, I think I'll open my lips that I may proclaim your gospel okay, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. So he's a kind of a asking God's blessing. In other words, the gospel is so important. You don't just just do it. Okay, you need you need spiritual preparation for it. Okay, but the blessing of the deacon. Okay. May the Lord be on your heart and on your lips that you may proclaim his gospel worthily, same word as for the priest, worthily and well in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that the priest is saying, don't, don't just mouth the words, okay? read it well. Does the deacon verbally request that blessing or does the deacon simply bow and the priest gives the blessing. In other words, it's one of your, it's one of your memorized lines. Okay, Father, your blessing. That's it. Okay. okay. And whether it's a bishop or a priest. Okay. Father, your blessing. May the Lord be in your heart and on your lips that you may worthily proclaim his gospel. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. But they'll go over that, you know, when you get closer to... And, that's one of the things that you'll do in your practicum on okay, serving at mass okay, in preparation for ordination for the diaconate. Hopefully not on Zoom. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Shoot. Okay. Uh, um, my job was a sacristan, which I get paid for. Uh, okay. I have done that for a couple of years already. Um, Father Elder, the pastor, um, he had assigned me to some jobs, most especially like uh, like on Sundays, because I, like I said before, I am very active at the uh, at the altar. He has me uh, walking over to a tabernacle, so I'm the one that brings out the blessed uh, blessed. Uh, the, the boss, I bring out the boss, you know, I, I do what I have to do. I do it with love always. Um, I always lift up and everybody's suspecting that. Every time when I when I bring him out, when I bring him back, um, and, and it's like a little, it's a change that everybody loves. Uh, you know, when I'm raising the boss, like King, and and Father Elder, he likes that, you know, and we work together as a good team uh, in the orchard. Um, but you had mentioned that, uh, um, that it's like we're not, I'm not allowed, but he's saying that, you know, I need your help and I am authorizing you to, to do the, to go get it. What your pastor tells you to do. Yes. So we're doing um, obedience. And you know everything I do in the altar is with love. In my community, I do it with love. Okay. The, uh, only, the only, the only trouble, Danny, that I would, in other words, that you're following his directions, I'm in total agreement with. Okay. Yeah. The, the part that when you say that you're bringing the ciborium, yes. Okay, to the altar, and you are raising it high. Well, with two hands. I, I, I question that. Okay, and invite you to think more about it. 
because where should the people's focus be? The odds are table. Right. Right. And so, in other words, if 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 bringing the blessed sacrament to the altar becomes a I'm going to use a word that 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 is pejorative, and I don't mean it to be, but a sideshow. In other words, if I'm holding it up high, I'm saying to the people, "Look at this." Going to the tabernacle is an add-on, and you always want to do it respectfully. You're not going to hold it at your side. You're going to hold it with a great deal of respect. But yes. when you talk about raising it up on high, that's going to attract attention, isn't it? Yes. Okay. And so I'd invite you to. Uh, I don't know that I. I'd recommend that. Yeah. Now, if he told you to do it, okay. But yeah. I don't know how you justify it. Yeah, because I really don't put it all the way, all the way high. This is a medium, you know, like like my my head level, you know. Okay. Not, so you know. So, so, but you know, I understand your your point. I just wanted to bring it up. You know, we we learn every day. We learn. You know, uh, in the same way, um, he has given me another job, which I uh, I love doing, and that was before the redemptors had had left. Because right now we have uh, 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 the Father Elder, which is a diocesan priest, our uh, pastor. Sorry, and um, so he says, you know, continue doing what were you doing. Uh, every Thursday we have a charismatic group. So be- before they used to have uh, one of the uh, the leaders used to bring out the um, the, the lunette over to the uh, small chapel and they they used to bury the dick and and all that. But they they stopped that. So they said, you know what? You're the one. You're the sacristan. Uh, we want you to put it up yourself, you know, set up, do whatever you do, which I do it with love, like I said, and, and with that passion. And I'm the one that, you know, always bring it out with the lunette, you know, and, and I do everything I have to do, everything by, by, by the book, you know. Um, and, and I don't know if that, that's also bad because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an acolyte or, or a deacon to be doing that. But again, if, if it has the authorization of the pastor, right, a lay person can do the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament outside of Mass. Okay. Okay. So the only thing that you are would not be doing, different from a benediction, is that you yes. would not bless the people. Yes. yes. You are exposing the Blessed Sacrament. That's... Yes. See, the difference is, is that during Mass, okay, you are not doing it during Mass. So yes. that is going to the ter- The same way as a sacristan, I okay. kind of expect you to have gone to the tabernacle yes. okay, to let me know how many hosts we need to, yes. uh, to uh, do that all the time. So yes. when I say don't go to the tabernacle, I'm talking about during Mass and Eucharistic ministers. I'm not talking about a sacristan whose job includes, yep. okay, going to the tabernacle to get the count, mm-hmm. or a person who has been delegated by the pastor to preside at the exposition of the Blessed Sacrament outside of Mass. Again, that's, those have its own rubrics, and you're on target with that. Okay. Okay. 
Those are three, 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 three less questions from from the Pepe. I I welcome them all. Thank you. And that's again a, a part that I would want everybody to feel comfortable with asking questions. Okay. Um, they don't. The only bad questions are the unasked ones. Okay, uh, this is appropriate time to ask. We just obviously filed our application for candidacy. Now, is we ever going to? We're not going to get a real formal response, are we? I mean, it's not like you are going to get a yes or a no. No, you're going to get. Uh, where is that? Frank is going to call your name that night. So the night at the mass on November 13th. So that means that's their acceptance for, for candidacy, not that you're obviously ordained. As he had mentioned that uh, even to the day they were supposed to be ordained, they you know they could change their mind. Exactly. Now, exactly. Archbishop puts his hand on your head. Uh, Peter, when I first was asked to teach a course for the deacons, deacon formation with Deacon Anthony, and this has to be like maybe 20 years ago. Um, so there, there was a, an opening convocation that even though there were no classes that night, since I was new to the ball game, I went to that convocation. And I listened to Bishop O'Brien later Archbishop O'Brien, later Cardinal O'Brien, okay, in a tirade to all the assembled men, and he was very angry, reminding people no one, no one has a right to ordination. Okay. No one has a right to ordination. That there had been somebody apparently over the summer who had been dismissed, okay, and they were raising the, uh, a ruckus, okay? no, but I put in these number of years. Right? Well, part of this process is to decide whether or not they want to call you or not. Okay? And so this is different than, than some secular things where you know, once you're invested in it, and they, they kind of owe you. Okay? Uh, they, no one has a right to ordination. So, yes, and I think I told you guys the story of I knew a when I worked at the seminary many years after that first story, okay, and it was no longer Bishop O'Brien who was the rector of the seminary. It was a different rector of where there was uh, the a fourth year man had received the call to orders, okay. And then there was a note on the bulletin board, you know, the one that I mean down by the refectory. Okay. And uh, it said that so-and-so would not be advancing okay, to ordination as a priest. Okay. Because after the call, his boyfriend okay, had written a letter to the rector okay, saying that this might be inappropriate. <laughs> Are you with me? And, and and like a wedding, you know, the, we kind of laugh at runaway bride, in order that we've been so maybe annoyed with the bridezilla thing. But it's better that 
better that they don't get married. Okay? Even the Beatles told everybody that breaking up is hard to do. Okay? So better that you pay some money to the caterer, okay? And everybody has a party without a wedding, okay? Than paying for the divorce. Is that making sense, sir? Okay. Um, I, when Bishop Walsh, again, a former rector, when he was at my confirmation in up the hill, George, at St. Gabriel's, uh, somehow we got onto that, that he thought a very important part of the rector's job okay, was to turn people away. Okay. If they're not going to be, in your judgment, going to be a good priest, or in this case, a good deacon, okay, it's unfair to the people of God. Right? Because then they, then they are scandalized by it. Okay? You know, uh, you know, this is me, and I'm pontificating again, and I apologize for that. But when, when Bishop Shanahan... Okay, an Irish bishop was discovered to have a paramour and a child out of wedlock okay, with this woman. That was the beginning of the change in the modern times in the Irish church. Okay? If, if the bishops weren't living it, then why should they? Are you with me? And I think that because sin lurks in the heart of us all, okay, Lots of people are just waiting for a rationalization. Say, ah, oh, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Okay. God forbid that it's me. Okay, who gives them that excuse? Okay, that's the kind of stuff about millstone hung around the neck, dropped into the sea. That'd be better. Okay. And I don't mean to be sounding scary, but it, it, does that make sense to people? Okay. And again, you've heard Frank say this over and over again, but you don't need to be a deacon to be holy. And you don't need to be a deacon to be of great service to the church. Okay? Agree? Okay. One more thing. It's like, I find, I mean, obviously, we're supposed to be, but Frank, Deacon Frank said, our behavior. We have to set an example. Even though we're not deacons, if we're starting to become deacons, we have to act like deacons. And it's a process, and that's why it's a five-year process, and I'm trying to get better at it. And the thing that I have a problem with, and maybe it's inappropriate to bring it up now in front of everybody, but I don't have anything to hide, is that I'm on many different committees. And I find it difficult to be very deacon-like when you're on a, whether it be a finance committee, a fundraiser, when you have a difference of opinion with your fellow parishioners. It's like, you know, you're not supposed to give your opinion, but you have to put it or say in a very diplomatic way. I, I, I can't speak to the specifics, Peter, but I can say that uh, in Deacon Anthony used to stress the idea, you may have been very much involved in your, very much involved in your job, 
or very much involved in your parish, okay? And if obviously it's the job that's putting the bread on the table and paying for the rent, okay? But if your job requirement is that you can't fully participate in all of the formation program, then maybe that's a sign from God that this is not for you, at least at this time. One of my classmates who wanted to become a deacon, and then he discovered that uh, it conflicted with his his work schedule in a big way. Okay, and then maybe maybe three months before we were preparing to start, okay, all of a sudden his work schedule got changed and opened this up. Okay, and he kind of regarded that as. That's a sign that he ought to keep on going. Okay. All right. Why did you know? Let me finish this. The second point, and if that's true of a job, in some ways it's also true of your involvement in the parish. Okay. That you may need to step back from okay, a lot of that committee work. Whereas if we're asking you to be two nights a week, in ordinary times, two nights a week that you've traveled from Staten Island to Dunwoody, plus you're doing papers, plus we're doing asking you to do um, apostolic work, okay? that means you cannot be and should not be on all of the things that you were doing beforehand. And if they don't understand that, then, then maybe that's a sign that okay, you've got to make a choice. Well, again, it's not a matter of the time because I'm pretty good at juggling my time and had like me and Steve were on boss and so is John. So you, you make sacrifices where you have to, you know what your priorities are. And, you know, I'm sure all of us are priorities of this program. The question I have is that I get into disagreements on the committee. And it's like, if you disagree with them, they don't like that. You know, and then you view that as unbeacon like because you disagree. So I'm thinking, like, if I ask, I don't want to be in the committee, then it looks bad. But if I argue, it looks bad. So am I supposed to go to a committee to keep my mouth shut? I wouldn't be on a committee. That's, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. And, and pretty basically, okay, that even when my understanding is. If the pastor wants pretty ex officio, a deacon or an ordained deacon is on the parish council, if there is a parish council, okay, pretty basically you're keeping your mouth shut, okay, and you're expecting expressing your opinions to the pastor privately. Thank you. Okay. Uh, See you on the 31st. Don't spend too much money on candy. How about trick or treating when I get candy? Good night, Peter. Good night, everyone. Doug, again, thank you for hosting us. Okay. Uh, Thank you all for your good questions. And again, always feel free to ask questions. This has got to be a safe spot for you. You don't get in trouble for asking questions. Okay? You get in trouble for misbehavior. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.
Good luck with the cars, Doug.